0: Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome back, Thwee Vu.
1: Well, hello again, ladies and gentlemen. There are gentlemen in the audience. How was lunch? How were your breakout sessions? Good? You've got all the solutions to the world's problems by now, I'm sure. You worked it all out over lunch. Welcome back. Uh, we, if you were in the breakout sessions, you know that we wanted to get our finger on the pulse of your thinking in those sessions. And we did hand out some polls. Uh, I just want to take a moment to take a look at how participants in a couple of the sessions responded to poll questions. So let's first begin with the empowering women in the workplace session. We asked, which do you believe should be the priority for an empowering workplace for women? And let's take a look at those results. Oh my, elimination of bias in hiring, promotion and reviews, you can see 36%. And uh, right after that was strong networking and mentoring opportunities, followed by increasing the number of women in leadership roles and flexible work schedules. Yes, I'm all for that. And equal pay, 5% equal pay was the lowest. I'm kind of surprised about that. Yeah, what happened? You want to be paid equally for your work, don't you? Come on. Um, well related to pay, I also want to jump to the dollars and cents fostering a strong economic future session. We asked the attendees there which areas of personal finance and building economic security do you believe are least understood by the majority of bay area women, and the responses were uh, let 's see here oh that 's a Big, big jump right there. Investing stocks, property, etc. So investments, uh, people felt were least understood, 39%, followed by general money management and then existing supports, including tax credits, programs, and resources, followed by retirement planning, and zero for college savings. Okay. Well, we all understand what our kids need, but apparently we're not so good at understanding what we need to do for our own retirement. All right. We're going to need to get on that. And also, in every session, we ask you to fill out a two-sided card expressing your opinions related to the biggest challenge in that particular area and the most promising solution that you have heard of today or thought of yourselves. We will be aggregating all of those thoughts and ideas, and the results will be available post-event on our Bay Area Women's Summit website. And this will be part of the reports that we prepare coming out of this summit for Mayors Lee and Mayor Schaff. Uh, thank you again for your Input and your commitment and working with us together on this. And now without further ado, to open our afternoon program, please welcome back, Mr. Mayor, Edwin Lee.
2: All right, I'm still here with all of you. How y'all doing? All right. Well, wow, what an exciting speaker. Panels that we have all morning it's really inspired me we're going to get a lot of things done for sure. Well today I'm honored to introduce a champion for all women. She is President Barack Obama's senior advisor, and her role is all encompassing, from overseeing the offices of public engagement and intergovernment affairs to chairing the White House Council on Women and Girls. Just last week, She hosted an incredible White House summit, the United State of Women, which brought together over 5,000 women and girls from across the nation and the world to discuss many of the issues, the same issues that we've been discussing on our agenda today. Valerie Jarrett's fierce advocacy can be seen in the collaborative efforts with the President's Working Families agenda and being Us being the first city to pay for six weeks of parental leave in the nation, San Francisco is proud to be an exemplary model for paid leave. Her work on the Obama administration has helped to improve the health, economic prosperity and income equity of middle and low income women across the country. And her commitment to the Affordable Care Act has empowered women through comprehensive, affordable health coverage, such as preventive health care, counseling, contraception, and family planning services. It's an honor to welcome to San Francisco and to this stage a champion for women everywhere. Please welcome the Honorable Valerie Jarrett.
3: we have... Where's Chris? There she is. Thought we lost her. I'm back. <laughs> well, hello, Valerie. Hello, 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 everybody.
4: How are you guys? <laughs> you look terrific. You sound even better. <laughs> we work at the same place, sort of. I've been on the campaign trail, and you're always doing something. So I just want to tell you a little bit more about uh, Valerie Jarrett, if I can. She is... I think arguably the most powerful woman in Washington and the president calls her his best friend. She lives a block away in Chicago, but in Washington, where real estate is everything, she has an office in the West Wing that I think anybody would want. Uh, There was a guy named Karl Rove, who they used to call Bush's Brain, who had that office. There was another woman, some of you may have heard of, who also had that particular office once. Her name is Hillary Clinton. (laughs) But what has she done with that power? I just made a little list. She has been central to the fight to raise the minimum wage, to expand paid parental leave, criminal justice reform, chair of the White House Council on Women and Girls. And that's just the start of it. And you had this little event called the United State of Women Summit. Yes, last week it was amazing.
3: I hope you all tuned in for that. That was so great. So So, the obvious question is, what is the state of women today? That's a really good question. So I think the state of women today, particularly in America, is better than it has ever been before. What do you think? What do you think? Come on, I think it has. Now, that doesn't mean, Chris, that we don't have a long way to go, but I just think if you look over the history of so many women on whose shoulders we stand, we're doing better across the board, but we've got to do even better still. And so the purpose of our summit last week was to take a hard look at the progress that we've made, particularly over the last seven and a half years since President Obama has been in office, but then also look at the work that's left to to do and try to hold up some best practices that we've learned as a result of our work over the last seven and a half years, share those practices around the country, or in fact, around the world, because it was a global summit, and then figure out what what else can we do. And so I was so excited to come out here a week later to
4: talk to all of you. So what's at the top of that list? What is at the top of your to-do list, Valerie
5: Jarrett?
3: Well, one of the areas where I am particularly frustrated, we are frustrated, keep in mind the very first bill that the president signed was the Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay Act. And it was named after this dynamo. I know you know, Chris, Lily Ledbetter and Lily was at the White House who was at the White House for our summit. She's been there many times. She was there for the bill signing. And what happened to Lily is that she worked for a company for decades and she had absolutely no idea that she was being paid less than her male counterpart. And the only way she found out is finally this guy who was her buddy slipped her a note and said, this is my pay, and I know it's not the same as yours. So she brought a lawsuit against her company, went all the way to the Supreme Court, and she lost. And the reason she lost the lawsuit is because the way the law worked back then, you had what's called a statute of limitations within which you have to bring a case. But she didn't even know she was being discriminated against, so the statute last. So the law that the president signed basically tolls that statute of limitations until you know you're being discriminated against. But even with that law being passed, women are still only earning 79 cents on the dollar, women of color even less, and it was 77 cents when the president took office. And so we need to do more, and there's more legislation that Congress has yet to pass called the fair, um, called the, what's it called, Jordan? Our bill for equal pay, paycheck fairness, thank you. Paycheck fairness, and what that would do is prohibit employers from discriminating against you or retaliating in the
4: event you share your pay because that's a way people find out whether or not they're getting equal pay it's really interesting i've spent a lot of the last month out on the campaign trail with bernie sanders and bernie sanders has a lot of lines that get applause but maybe the biggest and most dependable applause line is he says women want the whole damn dollar And men in the audience, men in the audience, you want it for them too. And the men go crazy. Now, that's a particular type of progressive audience, right? But how important is it and what do we do to get men and women to work together to say this is in our best interest? And make your case to an employer.
3: Right. Well, so, right. so this is a really good question, and I'm so happy to see an audience full of women, but a few really good men. A little brave, but good too, right? <laughs> because men have to be a part of this conversation. The reason why it's important to men is that women now comprise half the workforce. Uh, working moms are either the primary or the sole breadwinner in 40% of the households. A woman's contribution to the family income is more important than ever before. And so these issues are important not just to the woman, but to her family and to our economy. We have got to close that that wage gap, and if we do so, we will all be better off. We'll have more money that's disposable. You're going to go back out, and you're going to spend that money in the economy, and then that grows our economy and creates more jobs. So it is good for the economy, it's good for business, and it's good for women. And what we really are encouraging businesses to do is to just do a survey every year. Look at your books. Figure out whether or not you're paying people equally. There's a terrific company here in San Francisco, Salesforce, and the CEO, Mark Benioff, just He presumed he was paying everybody the same amount until a couple of employees pulled his coat and said, hey, we're not. And so he looked at it, and there was a $3 million discrepancy, which he closed like that. And so what we're challenging every employer to do is look at your books, figure out whether or not you're paying equally. If you do pay equally, in addition to it being good for the economy and good for the workers, your workforce is going to be more loyal. They're gonna, you're gonna have less turnover. And that applies, Chris, more broadly to this entire basket of working family issues. Equal pay, workplace flexibility, paid sick leave,
4: paid Paid what about family? paid family and sick leave? Well, let's... My friends in Europe, they're, they, they are... They think we're uh, crazy, they, right? They think we're... The president at this summit, and I honestly, if if you didn't go to it, uh, you can find it online and there's some great videos, but one of the things um, that the president talked about was the, the role of men in this, and he said, our policies are straight out of mad men. I think some people would argue they're straight out of the Stone Age. It's
3: ridiculous to think that we are the only developed country in the world, I mean only developed country in the world that doesn't have a federal paid leave policy. And that's ridiculous. We have we have children who get sick. We have parents who get sick. We get sick. Um, we also do not have a national required paid sick day policy. Another bill that's before Congress, the Healthy Families Act, would require every employee to be eligible for seven days of paid sick time a year. If you're sick, I actually don't want you in my office. I don't want you preparing my food. I don't want you at the water cooler slobbering all over the water. I mean, just stay home. But if you can't afford to stay home and 43 million Americans don't have a single paid sick day, 43 million Americans. And so just think about what that means. It means that they are forced in the untenable position of between choosing between making a living, which they have to make and staying home and taking care of themselves. And for many of them, they can't afford to lose a day's pay. And if they do stay home, they run the risk of being fired. So we have got to do something about that. And, and globally, we're having a harder time competing for talent, keeping it once we've retained, once we've hired people as well, because everybody else around the world is doing this. I was in New York f- several months ago with Spotify, great new company. Everybody's heard of it. Uh, they now have 12 12 months of maternity and paternity leave. And you don't have to take it all at one time, which is really good. So you and your spouse can figure it out. Why? Because in Sweden, where their home base is, it's 18 months. In order for them to attract people to work at their company, they have got to be competitive. And what they have figured out, which increasingly the private sector and the government and right here beginning with your mayor lee are figuring out is is it it their workforce will be more productive more uh... efficient more loyal you'll have less turnover and in the private sector more profitable if you invest in your workforce and that's the challenge that we have is what it what does it take for the twenty first century workplace to reflect the needs and the values of the twenty first century worker because it's different than it was in the stone ages or even in the madman era
4: well america right now is the only civilized industrialized country that has unpaid maternity leave you know who else Swaziland, Lesotho, and Papua New Guinea. That's just not who we want to be competitive with. I'm sorry, right? Come on, that
3: just doesn't make any sense. And the argument you hear is that companies can't afford it. Well, sure they can. And this is part of what we dispelled at the uh, summit that we had two years ago. And what you hear particularly is, well, maybe that's fine for the big companies like a Facebook or an Apple, but the small companies can't afford it. And so we brought in a whole group of small businesses to talk to them about these policies. And what, what I heard, interestingly, which won't surprise those of you who work in small businesses, is that those entrepreneurs care a great deal about the culture in their company. They know the family members of their workers. They know when someone's child is sick or the parent is getting elderly or they have demands, stresses outside of the home and they care about the health of their worker. And so they said it's a investment that pays itself over several-fold. And so we need to dispel this rumor that you can't afford it. You invest and you, inv- what better asset do you have in a globally competitive world than the human assets that drive your businesses? That's like all of you. That's what you've got. You should give yourself a round of applause.
4: Yes, That's a good thing you got. <laughs> so we know what the role of government is and we know how hard that you have worked on many of these issues and that the president has pushed for them. But understanding that Government, A, can't do everything, but also that government may not get to where a lot of women, a lot of people in this audience feel that they need to get to. What do we all do? What are those of us who are, you know, people who are struggling to make ends meet or struggling with child care, struggling with going to work sick, uh, what do we do?
3: Well, it gets really hard. And, and we, you know, we often talk about the fact that disproportionately women are low-wage workers. And they don't often have a lot of choices.
4: It's not like you can just speak up and have your voice be heard. Well, when, I, if I can interrupt, because you said, uh, I think, something important back there, that you had a boss when you were in corporate law who looked like you. Yes, I did. And so you were able to do some things that maybe you wouldn't otherwise have been able to do. Look, I was- in a,
3: Accommodating your life. I was a single- I am a single mom, and when my daughter was growing up, I needed some flexibility. It began with maternity leave. I worked at a law firm and there were a couple of women who were partners at the law firm who'd had children. And we had a four month paid maternity leave policy which was unprecedented 30 years ago. And I took advantage of that policy because I looked at people who were partners in the firm who took advantage of it. A lot of companies might have good policies, but the culture is such that you don't really feel like you can take advantage of it. And so I think it's really important that companies who adopt these policies walk the walk. So when Mark Zuckerberg takes a paternity leave and he says, all right, I'm one of the most successful business leaders in this town, but I am not indispensable, I can go home and be with my child, that sends a very positive message not just through his company, but really through corporate America. And I think what we're seeing, thanks to my daughter's generation, is more men are feeling a sense of responsibility to participate in the caregiving of their children, which is good for the children and good for the guys. But they're also recognizing that the younger generation will be healthier and more productive if we invest in that way. And so part of what you can do is to is to raise your voices if you can. I'm not saying if you think you if you absolutely know that you're in a situation where you can't go in and say something to your boss then you can be participating in sessions like this you can vote You can vote for people who support the kind of practices that you want. That's the best form of citizenship yet is to vote. Um, One of the challenges, Chris, frankly, with the fact that unions now only represent 7% of the private sector workforce is that people's voices um, are often unheard because they don't have collective bargaining working to their advantage. And so it's harder. You feel disenfranchised. You feel powerless. Uh, But if you are in a position to speak up, and I know a lot of women who I've known over the years who could speak up and didn't, shame on you. You've got to if you're empowered to do so. If you're in a situation where you can do it, and if you don't, just do it for yourself. Do it for your colleague whose voice is too soft and won't be heard.
4: And I'm curious, how many of this is... Yeah, that deserves applause. Honesty time, how many of you who are lucky enough to have a set amount of vacation don't take their vacation all their vacation time wow wow so part of it is what's on paper and part of it's what's cultural right part of it is what's okay what you again you look around you I'm all, smiling cuz I don't take all my vacation
3: time either. okay but, but wait a minute. but but you know what but paid leave is different paid leave is different right? i think that if I, I mean what we've tried to do in the white house for example which you would concede as a pretty high-powered place to work. Uh, we work around the clock, but what the president has really done is set this tone and culture that if you have a baby, take your three months we offer, three months in the White House paid leave, we will save your spot for you. When you get back, you can hit the ground running. And then when you do come back, we should all create the culture that is welcoming. Yesterday, one of my top deputies had a son who had a fever and she brought him in. Now, I wasn't that happy that he came into my office and we did not make her go sit in Siberia in the office, but she was, she knew Absolutely, he was welcome to come in. And that if she had to get up and walk out in the middle of the meeting because he got grumpy, that's fine with me. Because you know what, I want her to want to come to work. She's really talented. And if her baby is sick, I know she doesn't want to leave him because I didn't want to leave my baby. So just keep him away from me, but bring him on into the office.
4: (laughs) Honestly, if you want a picture with Barack Obama, bring your baby to the White House. You've seen all those photographs. He is a baby magnet.
3: He is. If you ever want to go online and be amused, Google Obama babies, and you will see the funniest photographs ever laying on the floor in the Oval Office, making them stop crying. He thinks that he's just as soon as he picks him up. He thinks he's off, the baby whisperer. He is the baby whisperer. I have, there's a great one. This is digressing a bit, but it's really funny. With the first lady holding a baby who's really crying, and he comes up and takes the baby away, and the baby is instantly silent, and the look on her face... Face was like what are you kidding me you never
4: did that when the girls were little how did that work how did that work so well <laughs> so that's a perfect segue to uh, what was probably um, the smartest dinner you ever went to because we want to figure out how Valerie Jarrett got to be Valerie Jarrett and it began as I have read about it uh, that you were looking to hire someone and her first name happened to be Michelle And she wanted to bring her fiancé, who was not so crazy about her going to work for you. That's true. And his name happened to be Barack Obama. Yeah. And that was 25 years ago? 25
3: years ago this month, I think it is. Yeah, June. So I was Mayor Daly's deputy chief of staff. I had uh, worked in a law firm, as I mentioned, where I took the four months paid maternity leave, but for a whole host of other reasons was pretty miserable there. And I had this... Epiphany where I, I, said, you know, if I'm gonna get up and leave my baby every day. Am I doing something where I feel fulfilled? And I just, I honestly didn't. And I was doing what my parents thought was great. I was a first lawyer uh, in my family. They were very proud of me, but I was really just miserable. And so I take this, took this leap of faith and I went to work in city government and I left this beautiful office on the 79th floor of what was then the Sears Tower in Chicago, Lake Michigan, little, you know, sailboats in the summer. And I went to work in City Hall, and my first year of work, I walk in, and my office turns out to be a euphemism. It was a cubicle (laughs) facing an alley. But I am telling you from my First day there, I knew I was where I belonged. I just loved it. And so uh, four years later, I had left the law department where I had really enjoyed for the first time practicing law and the mayor had promoted me. And I was looking for young, talented people to come and help staff up the mayor's office. And someone sent me a resume and it said across the top, terrific, high power, amazing young woman, can't stand being at a law firm. I said, that's my kind of person. So it turned out to be Michelle Robinson. And you're right. Uh, I was supposed to have like a 20 minute interview with her. Hour and a half later, she had mesmerized me. I offered her a job on the spot. I didn't check with my boss. I didn't check with anybody. <laughs> she was really smart. She said, let me get back to you on that. And so a few days later, we were, uh, hold hold your horses, just a minute. So a few days later, we were talking, and I said, what do you think? And she said, well, I've been talking it over with my fiance, because they really were planning their life individually, but collectively, which is a beautiful thing. And he doesn't think it's such a great idea. And all right, that's what I was like. So she said, so would you be willing to have dinner with us? And I thought, well, all right, I can do that. Let's, let's have dinner. So we had a very long, interesting dinner. I got a sense of them individually and collectively as a couple. I hope they got a sense of me. And in the end, she did come and work with me. And the rest is history.
4: (laughs) Well, the rest is history. It's been said, and I don't know, this is an awkward question for you to have to answer. But it's been said that you were the first person to see the political potential in him, and that it was really you all along who said, This is something you need to do beyond a community organizer. You can.
3: Mm, no, not really. Not true. <laughs> <laughs> I, that would be such a good thing to be able to claim, but there are like too many people out there who probably know. In fact, my claim to fame is that I tried to talk him out of running for the US Senate. That didn't work out. For, it's amazing he listens to anything I say after that. <laughs> but I felt, and this is really a life, it was a life lesson for me. He had run against Congressman Bobby Rush, and he lost, like badly lost. And uh, it was just a couple years later, he came back, and he said he was thinking about running. And so the First Lady and I orchestrated this uh, breakfast at my home where we invited his closest friends, all designed to talk him out of this race. <laughs> Yeah, we were like, we were all on script and the first lady was like, don't forget, talk him out of running. And so at the end of this brunch, not only were we all like, absolutely, I guess you should run. (laughs) Then I say to him, well, you really aren't going to be able to raise any money. And he goes, well, that's why you're going to chair my finance committee. So he had figured it all out. But I did, I did at first tell him, what if you lose? And he said, why are you afraid of failure? If I fail, then I'll just go do something else, but that's not a reason not to try. And I thought that was such a good life lesson because I was busy worrying for him, right? You shouldn't do that. You've gotta be calculated risk, but you do have to, in a sense, be fearless. But what I did recognize, to give myself even just a teeniest credit, when I first met him, I still remember thinking, what an extraordinary young man who is, what he's trying to figure out mostly, is how to make a difference and he, at that point he didn't have any idea what it would be he was still a lawyer he hadn't even entered politics back then but he said I just I, I feel like who, to those who much is given much is expected and I want to do something they both wanted to do something in the public service and I was so heartened to see talented young people who could do anything who could start a company be in a corner office be extremely successful in the private sector both be committed even at that early age to the public good and i think that's a wonderful thing
4: as interventions go that didn't really work out the way you planned it to but it did actually work out not the way i planned it to. (laughs) i I think failure is an important thing to talk about and i'll I'll tell you a quick story which is that when i was uh, young and uh, on television for the first time i got called into the boss's office and he said he was taking me off the air um because i didn't have it and i said well what is it. And I don't think he, he expected, I think he expected me to cry or something. But, uh, I said, what is it? And he goes, you don't have pizzazz. And two months later, he was gone. And, uh, you know, the rest as they, Yeah. <laughs> but, but you, you know, you talk about, so you had accomplished this great thing. You'd gotten through law school. You had this big job. You got the corner office. You got the nice view. You're watching the boats go by. And so that wasn't for you. There are different kinds of failure, right? And and I don't even like that word, failure. I felt like a
3: failure. I felt like a failure. And I was also in the middle of a divorce, and that felt like a failure, too. And I think I was really hard on myself for reasons that I can't really understand anymore all these years later. And I think we have to give ourselves a break. And that... It's okay to fail or just stumble. And that doesn't, that's not a reflection on you. But how do you get you. through it? You just gut your way through it. You just get, you know, you get up every single day and you just keep trying. And I think, right? That's what you do. And it's hard. I, I don't want to sugarcoat it. I mean, divorce is one of the hardest things other than perhaps, you know, a death in the family. And it was really hard on me. And I just had never occurred to me, I wouldn't, I married, this is like a, I married truly the boy next door. He didn't physically live next door to me, but get this, my mother grew up with his mother. My grandmother grew up with his grandmother. Like what could go wrong, right? A lot could go wrong with that situation, a lot. (laughs) But it took me a long time to kind of come to terms with that and to not feel like it was a reflection on me. It just didn't work and it wasn't, it didn't have to be, you know, a value judgment on either one of us, although I think it's a bit of a value judgment on him, but um <laughs>
4: little bit.
6: Maybe. <laughs>
4: this is the father of your daughter we're That's talking terrible.
6: about. This <laughs> is terrible.
3: It's terrible. Um, but my point to you all is is that Bad things are gonna happen. You're, if you don't fail at something, then you're just not expanding beyond your comfort zone far enough. And so I'm always encouraging people to try and then when you do fail, and this is a bit of a stereotype, but men tend to fail and they just like fail? I didn't fail, did I? And they get right back up and they're back at it again. And sometimes when we fail, it's like a, you take it to heart and you can't take it to heart. You have to ask like you did. Well, you know, why is it you don't think I should be on TV? You've got to listen because maybe he had something constructive. Turns out he was dead wrong, but he might have had something constructive to tell you and you've got to be willing to hear something that's a little bit painful and learn that's right. and learn from that experience and then try to do better. And um that's what life, that's what makes life an adventure.
4: So you find yourself at the White House, just you know, you just find yourself. First of all, the longevity is is incredible, and I thought I worked hard until I went to the White House, honestly. And it's it's hard. It's not just 24/7, but it's 24/7 on steroids because the number of issues around the world that you have to deal with is extraordinary. And my hat is off to everyone of any political party who has ever worked there because. The TV show, The West Wing, as great as it is, does not really help you to understand. So how have you done it for seven and a half years? Nobody does it for seven and a half years. They just don't. No, they don't. And,
3: I mean, do you sleep? Sleeping is overrated. I think. No, this is, look. Um, timing is everything. And we were, we were talking a little bit earlier about, like, can you have it all in life? And I always say, well, it depends upon your leverage and the circumstances in which you're in. And so for me to take on this job at the time we started, my daughter was in law school. Um, I'm single. I didn't have a lot of responsibilities other than myself. And the president and the first lady are two of my dearest friends on earth. And so this was um, just an as it goes as easy as circumstances you could imagine to take on this incredible opportunity i love what i do i love my job and i've had i've had jobs that i did not love and so it makes you treasure one that you love even more so and to have the privilege of serving um our country this greatest country on earth at a time of great tumult is extraordinary it's just extraordinary so i would be so upset if I were back home in Chicago looking at what's happening in Washington rather than being right there and It's only six more months. You can do
4: just about anything for six more months, right? So and I, I want to so ask, you, you, about this, I ask you about this six more months, but what's like the coolest thing you got to do? What is the coolest thing?
3: I'll, th- I'll tell you the thing because I'm not sure how you define cool. Because I'm, like, Air Force One's pretty cool. Well, you're, yeah. That's pretty cool.
4: You've been on Air Force One. And you one. get that's a certificate cool. and it says you're on Air It says you've yeah. been on Air
3: Force One. Yeah. So, all right, so that's cool. But I'll tell you one thing I did that was really just extraordinary is I went to Dharamsala, India with a letter from President Obama to deliver to His Holiness the Dalai Lama.
4: And who was just in Washington. Who was just in Washington, who's like my buddy.
3: I'm like buddies with the Dalai Lama now. <laughs> Valerie Jarrett and the Dalai <laughs> yeah, Lama are like we a birthday life. party. We were hanging out together when he turned 80. But <laughs> it's true. It's true. We were in New York for like five hours together at his huge birthday party. But the point of it was it was a diplomatic mission. And... He was so kind enough, he spent like two and a half hours talking to me about his life, and he had just returned from Europe, and he's not a young man, and he was in his late 70s, and talked to me about the situation in China and Tibet, and, and he is such a joyful spirit. And think about it, his, Tibet has been living basically, all these folks from Tibet, living in India in exile for 55 years now. And yet he's still this amazingly joyful spirit. And so, and let me tell you, it is not easy to get to Dharamsala. And it's like over hill and over dale and planes, trains and automobiles. But it was such an unusual mission. And it was one where the president was trying to signal to him something very important. And I was I was the messenger for that. So that was like
4: really cool. That was cool. And and. I, I have to tell I've seen you a few times standing out by the portico. The president will come out sometimes um, into the Rose Garden. And doesn't that sound kind of pretentious? Oh, yes. Yeah, so the president comes out to the Rose Garden and we're there waiting for him. But you'll see members of his staff when it's something really big, like a Supreme Court decision about gay marriage. Yeah. And everybody's hugging and it's yeah. a really, like, you, you realize when you work with people 20 hours a day how familial it gets. So the clock is ticking. Six more months. Yeah. And while I, I see a relaxation in the president and some of his staff members like, okay, we've done this, we know what we're doing. There's also this idea that six months from now, seven months from now, the power that you have now goes away right is there a pressure is there something at the top of your list that you would just say please god let me get this done yeah before it's all over
3: yeah there are a number of things on our bucket list still to do which is part of what makes it magical every day one of the issues that I'm spending a lot of time right now on is criminal justice reform and we are trying so hard Thank you. I'm so glad you feel that way because it's so important. We spend $80 billion a year in our country on our criminal justice system. We have 5% of the world's population and we have 25% of those incarcerated. 2.2 million people currently in prison and 70 million Americans with some sort of a criminal background record. And we have a totally dysfunctional system. And we have problems in our community that create this pathway to the prison system that disproportionately affects people of color. Uh, We have um, mandatory minimum sentences for nonviolent drug offenses, which is what's working its way through Congress right now. Although I will tell you, I was much more optimistic about a couple weeks ago, because we've got this coalition you wouldn't believe. We have the ACLU and we have Koch brothers, both working on something. And we have bipartisan in both the House and the Senate members who care about this because they know that this current system is unsustainable. So we're trying still to get that done, and I'd like to. But at the same time, we are doing what we can to um, help people as they come out be prepared to re-enter society. 600,000 people are released each year. And you know what's the best way to keep them from going back?
4: Give them a job. Give them a job. I'm going to never be invited back because I'm going over time and Uh I know we could talk to her forever, but I want to ask you one last question because I was struck at the end of the the summit last week. One of the last things that the president said was that we have to tell our stories, that, you know, whether it's Michelle Obama or Rosa Parks or Billie Jean King or Sheryl Sandberg, we have to tell stories. What do you want people to take away from your story? Everybody here in the audience, whatever age they are, whatever, wherever they are on the corporate ladder, however hard they're struggling or not, what is the part of your story you want them to know?
3: Well, I would have never expected to be sitting in this room talking to you as a senior advisor to the President of the United States. It was never in my childhood dreams. I didn't aspire high enough. And so what I would really want young people in particular to know is is that you don't sell yourself short and do believe in yourself and try to give it your best and be open to changing paths. I think everybody, when I was younger, had this straight path. And I ventured way off that path when I left that corner office. And it was the smartest thing I ever did. And I think part of what I try to say particularly to young people Chris is is that you get a lot of advice in life and I give out a lot of advice now that I'm my age I could tell you a book full of advice in fact one day I may tell you a book full of advice but she um, won't
4: dish on the president and the first lady ever
3: she ever because they're my friends and you don't dish on your friends um, You really don't and if you do you're not a friend uh, but I think I think part of what um, I want young people to know is is that there are infinite possibilities out there for them. And you, I had a, a lot of advantages growing up. I had two parents who loved me. I had a great education, but I didn't have self-confidence in myself. And I was painfully shy. I know that's hard for you to probably believe, but I mean, I literally, I could never, and never have stood up and talked to a crowd a third of this size when I was young. And I kept being thrown into situations where I had to do stuff I was really uncomfortable doing. And you get more comfortable. And so I think my message to you is just try it. You'll like it. And even if you don't like it, you can always do something else. And it's the 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 uh, surest way home is sometimes the long path. And I'm glad I took the long path.
4: Senior advisor to President Barack Obama, Valerie Jarrett. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
3: Thank you very much. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Good crowd. Great crowd. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Mayor.
0: And now, to take us into the next segment, please welcome the Chief Operating Officer of Northern California for Kaiser Permanente, Janet Liang.
7: Good afternoon. Uh, I have to say that Kaiser Permanente is very fortunate to be able to sponsor many conferences and seminars across Northern California, but we are especially privileged to be here with all of you today. What a wonderful, inspiring, transformative, and powerful series of conversations we've had this morning and will have this afternoon. And we are just f- so fortunate to, that uh, Mayors Lee and uh, Shaft hosted this event for all of us um, today. You know, the health of Northern California is very important to us um, for a couple of different reasons. First, uh, one in three Northern Californians uh, are... Kaiser Permanente members, and that means that we're responsible for the health and well-being of over 4 million lives here in our communities. It also means that we employ over 60,000 employees and physicians. So I can tell you that the health of our members, the health of our employees is explicitly tied to the health of the community here in Northern California. And the theme of today's conference, uh, we've heard loud and clear over and over again, is that um, gender equity is not just a nice nice to have, it is an absolute must have. It is a necessary requirement if our communities here in Northern California are going to experience economic vitality and the social well-being of all here in the Bay Area. So, um, so Kaiser has been a long time champion of removing disparities and promoting diversity and inclusion since our inception in the 1940s and continuing into today. And it's not just in the care that we provide to our members, but it's also in the business um, that we conduct and how we conduct ourselves. So I thought I'd share a few facts. Uh, the first is that um, in 2013, we're, we were very proud to join the Billion Dollar Roundtable. That is um, for organizations that um, spend over a billion dollars a year uh, with suppliers who are diversity-owned, including uh, women. So we were very proud to join that very uh, elite group of organizations that have committed our spending to minorities and um, women-owned businesses. Secondly, we have an investment portfolio that we self-manage, and we earmarked $25 million to set aside specifically to have Um, um, minority and, uh, women owned business investment managers manage those funds for us. It is a field, it's a, a field in the, um, finance industry where there's very low representation of women and minority owned businesses. Uh, third, you heard earlier uh, on the stage in the discussion around leadership and uh, visibility that Fortune 500 companies have 15% on average of their executives are women. Well, at Kaiser Permanente we're very proud to say that 47% of our executives are women, and I happen to be one of those lucky, fortunate women. And lastly, uh, Diversity Inc, which is a national magazine that rates companies for their promotion of diversity and inclusion, ranked Kaiser Permanente as the number one uh, organization in the United States. So we're very proud of that um, honor and that that accomplishment. So, uh, you know, I, I want to say that businesses certainly lead by example and we're very proud of what we have done and we intend to do even more. But it takes a village uh, to be able to promote and to um, create gender equity in our communities. And so this session that's coming up now is um, called the Every Woman and Her Allies. and one of her many allies of course is their partner and their spouse and their and their life um, long companions and so i'm really honored to introduce josh levs who is a sought after speaker and a champion of gender equality he is recognized by the financial times as one of the, one of the top 10 male feminists Male feminist, we're gonna learn what that is in a few minutes, and has been named a global champion of gender equality for his role in the He for She campaign. He's a journalist, he's a sought after speaker, he's an expert on issues facing modern families, and he's an author of a book called All In How Our First Work Culture Fails Dads, Families and Businesses and How We Can Fix It Together. So please welcome to the stage, Mr. Josh Levs.
8: Thank you, I appreciate that. Hey everybody, how's it going? I, uh, I do walk around with a lot of energy, but I'm not going to tell you to get up and exercise, so don't worry. I got this. Um, and by the way, I'm unpacking so much stuff out of my pockets so right now, I need like my baby Bjorn with me. But the reason is I'm doing double duty up here today. I'm, uh, I'm going to be giving... You guys a little talk and then I'm going to be uh, bringing up these awesome couples to have a broader conversation. I also, I always feel bad doing this. It seems so high maintenance, but I bring up my own computer and they have been very nice to me to let me do that because I'm going to be sharing with you all, um, some clips along the way of, uh, well, at least one video clip. Um, my message to you is that men are actually ready and willing to fight for gender equality in much larger numbers than is popularly believed. And that's a really great piece of news that I get to bring. It's true. I know I don't expect a lot of applause yet. Wait till you hear my story and then you'll start to find out how I know that this is the case. I want to tell you all about my background. So, I did 10 years on NPR and then 10 years on CNN. And on CNN, one of the biggest things I did was I was a fact-checker. So I was always fact-checking politicians, especially presidential candidates, which as you can imagine is more than a full-time job. It's unbelievable. I just really wanna be up there on the debates right now, every time somebody says something false and just have a buzzer like Um, no one would ever get to talk. I'd need like a paperweight to put on top of the buzzer through the entire thing. But so I was, I was this fact checker. And then at the same time, I became a dad. And when I became a dad, look, uh, becoming a parent is always dramatic in every way to everyone who has that experience. It's like this big bang in your life. You have this universe you're suddenly responsible for. But in my family's case, the drama was extra, extra heavy and ridiculous. With our first son, we found out at two days that he would need major heart surgery. Here he is at seven days and i like to show this picture because yes it was a nightmare and horrifying but this is also beautiful because this is the story of humanity this is what we do we innovate we adapt we create stuff to survive here he is a year later no scar no nothing um right so but he, but when i yeah it's amazing and thank you to all doctors so when i became a dad i for the first time suddenly cared about money I had never cared about money before. You can tell I didn't care about money because I graduated from Yale and went to work for NPR. You don't do that if you want money. But I was a dad, so now I was like, oh man, like mortgage and someday college, what am I gonna do? And at the time, the more I worked, the more money I made. The more I was on air on CNN, the more I got paid. So I started working way too much. I was doing 12 or 14 hour days, but I didn't wanna ever miss any moments either. So I would work starting at like 4 a.m., get home at 6 p.m., I would cook dinner, I would read to him, take him for walks, play with him, bath, bed, everything. But I wasn't fully mentally present, and that was a problem. Then came baby number two. And a major drama here was that he and my wife conspired to skip labor altogether. So three weeks before her due date, she fell to the floor of our bedroom and stuff started coming out into my hands. I won't get gross, don't worry. But I saw his head and his eyes were shut, no movement. And then I saw the umbilical cord um, and the, uh, the cord was wrapped around his neck five times. By the way, I went to, I spent a summer at Gallaudet University and I remember a little, little tiny bit of sign and I want to thank you very much for what you're doing. Okay. So, yeah. Right. Okay, so, here, so this is why I have this up here, because I don't always share this clip. It took me more than a year to be ready, but when I felt like emotionally ready, I shared some of my 911 call with um, my friend at CNN, Dr. Sanjay Gupta. I'm going to play right, so a little bit it. of it for oh you right God. now is from when that, we aired it on uh, HLN. Here it goes. Okay, so it's the baby completely out of just a hand? No, just
9: a head. I'm seeing a head. It's not scrunched up. That means but it's not crying, it's
10: not making noise. The eyes are shot.
4: Okay, have her
10: to push hard and get the baby out, of okay? No, push hard, get the baby out. Push hard, push hard. Oh, my God, I'm holding my baby. Uh-huh. It's my biblical cord, and someone wrapped around his neck, I'm taking it off. Okay, listen, g- gently watch the baby's
4: mouth and nose. Oh,
10: it's choking, it's choking on that cord. Uh, breathe, baby, breathe.
4: Breathe, baby, breathe. Let me give you a CPR instructions for the baby, okay? Oh, the baby's breathing. Is the baby breathing? Yes,
8: it's breathing. All right, if you're going to have kids someday, don't worry. That will not happen to you, all right? <laughs> All the exception things that don 't really happen happen to my family, so we can be the magnet for the exceptions that won 't happen to you but here 's the result that that had as I started processing it took a long time what that experience was like, and he worked out great, everything worked out great. Um, I for the first time realized that in that moment i didn 't care about money I cared about life i cared about family i cared about connection and love and i don't want to miss any of the moments ever and that includes being mentally present as well as physically present so i started looking for work-life balance at that time i started covering fatherhood on the air and the strangest thing happened when i did segments in which i reported i started interviewing other dads when i did this this first one I interviewed three, uh, I did three segments interviewing a group of dads and this became the number one thing, oh, when I point down there, it's because I'm seeing what's over there, remind me not to do that. So anyway, so um, so I, we aired this, it became the number one thing on the CNN newsroom blog, all these people were writing in like, whoa, you just interviewed real dads, then I got calls from media wanting to interview me about being a dad who interviews other dads and I had to figure out what's going on and then I came to understand that no one ever saw real dads talk about actual things that we really talk about. In real life, we're not stereotypes. In real life, we talk about what are your worries? What are your economic concerns? Uh, Is it tough being the solo working parent? Is it tough being the at-home dad? All of these things, just normal conversations were blowing people's minds because they never saw that on TV. And then what really blew people's minds was when I took my fact-checking know-how, I had learned in all this fact-checking how to know the difference between a fake study and a real study, actual methodologies, digging into the methodologies behind studies to find out what's really going on what's true and false. So I started reporting truths about dads. Working dads in the U.S. spend an average of three hours with their kids each work day. Virtually all who live with their kids care for them in every major category at least several days a week, if not every day. And by the way, on that second point, to totally blow out stereotypes, by far the majority of black fathers live with their children and are actually the most involved. No one knows these things. My job is too easy. That information is in my book. Charles M. Blow in the New York Times wrote about my book, Sourcing Me. It's so twisted that a guy like that needs that from me. So the the point is, basic facts about fathers were unknown. And dads are suffering from work-life conflict as much as or even more than women. Now, here I am covering fatherhood, right? And then all of a sudden, there's this big switcheroo where I become the dad in the news. Here's what happened there. My wife was pregnant with our third child. And we realized that I will be needed at home for caregiving after the birth. Now, that is a completely normal thought. There's nothing strange about it. Dads do caregiving now. Unfortunately, in this country, we are so stuck in the past. Our laws and policies are way out of the past. So the the policy I was under at CNN was so weird and yet sadly typical. Under the way that their policy was structured, anyone could get 10 paid weeks to care for their new child, except a man who got his own wife pregnant. So if I put my daughter up for adoption and another guy I worked with adopted her, he could get 10 paid weeks. If there was a surrogate involved, they had let moms get 10 paid weeks. If I had a same sex domestic partner who adopted a baby, but I did not adopt the baby, I could still get 10 paid weeks to care for his baby without even being the dad. But I, the real me couldn't. So I went to the company in advance, totally in secret. I was like, look, this has got to be an oversight. There's no way you meant for this to happen. Um, but they wouldn't give me an answer and months went by no answer. And then because it's my family drama again, at 35 weeks my wife's symptoms from preeclampsia were so scary they had to take out the baby right then so i'm writing them from the the, from the hospital am i going to get the time or not still no answer um ultimately and ultimately i uh i baby was born and 11 days later i'm home holding my four pound preemie and um taking care of my sick wife and our two boys and that's when work said no a guy like me could only get two paid weeks. I couldn't get the 10 weeks for caregiving. Everything else that happened from here is in my book, and, and you can read about it. And I hope you do. I'll tell you about that. But um, what I want you to know is that when I announced that I was taking legal action, the responses that came in blew me away. It felt like I had unleashed the floodgates of love. I'm sorry. I really want to see what floodgates of love looks like in sign language. Did you get to it? Okay. <laughs> I felt that was awesome. Um, that was, I'm going to start doing it. Okay so i i felt like i had unleashed the floodgates of love and and all this support came in and it came from women's groups and men's groups from mom blogs and dad blogs from all and it came from conservatives and liberals and 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 big names in in the news and big names in media and business and so all of a sudden i was back to where i was when i started covering fatherhood i was like what is it about my little case that's so interesting to people and that's when I came to understand that we are all in this together. What we have in this country. Oh, and my, this is the book. I, I went delving into this for the book. And my publisher, by the way, is right here in San Francisco, Harper One, which is part of HarperCollins. So thank you, Harper One, for, for being there with me. They rock. And so is my agent, Roger Freed. He's based out here. Okay, now I can say I I said their names. Um, He's busy picking up his daughter right now, which is perfect. That just fits right in. Okay, so, so I started digging into this, and I wanted to understand... What was it about my case that was so important and what did it reflect? And I came to understand this. What we have in this country is a network of laws and policies and stigmas that act as gender police in the workplace that to this day push women to stay home and push men to stay at work. But all of these things are symptoms. And what I've come to understand is you cannot treat the symptoms, you have to treat the cause. And this right here, this is the cause. The cause is mad men, all right? (laughs) This this is literally where it starts in the 1950s. We as a nation were coming out of the war and building this whole new economy. The concept of what it was to be American to be successful in America to be a successful man or woman in America was built in a new way. and It was so strictly gendered. It was very clear woman baby home man at work. So. For example, as you all know, it is a tremendous business incentive to have on-site childcare. When you have it, people come back to work way sooner, and people are willing to pay more for on-site childcare than they are to slept their kids across town. But virtually zero businesses have it, even though it's a financial incentive. Why do virtually business, zero businesses have it? Because it's anathema to the way that our work culture was designed. Woman, baby, home, man, work. That's how we created this. And this is what we need to tackle. We have our laws and policies, but by far the biggest thing holding us back when it comes to men in the workplace is stigmas. Men face derision, demotions, even loss of their jobs when they make family a priority. And this is an important reality check. We had a speaker earlier today who accurately said that after a man has a baby, he can sometimes get a fatherhood bonus, get paid more. That only applies to those men who show their bosses that work is more important than family. They stay there extra hours. It's the thing called the hours bonus, the hours stigma, in which men to this day are raised up the ranks, literally for sitting at our desks for more hours. Because we're sending the message, work is still more important to me than family. Men who take time off or seek a flexible schedule have faced so many kinds of punishments in the workplace. It's astounding. There's a guy in my book who um, his baby was born in emergency. He had to leave he only missed a couple of days he came back to work on monday his boss called him in and rebuked him how dare you take off so much time don't you know that we need you around here and actually that boss was a pregnant woman which uh, which i know is you know the exception there aren't that many bosses in general who are women but unfortunately what a lot of the experts told me for this book is that the few the rare times that women manage to make it up there often it's because they've been willing to tap into these old gender norms so guys are getting punished for this and all of this is connected and it's very bad for business. I travel now. I work with businesses. I organize these events in which we get men to start talking about our work-life conflict. And that, in turn, leads to actual talk about gender-neutral policies. It makes a huge difference. And this is one of the biggest reasons this is a big incentive. U.S. men are even more likely than women, believe it or not, to switch jobs or careers, move to another state or country for more time with family. That was found by, um, by Ernst & Young, by EY. And I'm seeing these statistics all the time. Men are leaving their jobs, but they're not saying why until some survey comes along. So businesses are losing these great employees. This is the picture of Brain Drain. Men and women are leaving their jobs. These businesses are losing phenomenal people. And this is hurting all of us because it's really expensive to replace an employee. This is also a global situation. Worldwide, most dads wish to work less for more time with their children. And these same stigmas show up in different ways. So even when paternity leave is available around the world, the overwhelming majority of it goes unused because of stigmas. So getting rid of these stigmas is essential to build businesses. Until we do that, we won't have equal opportunities. My children, if we don't fix this, My children will still enter a madman work culture when they're old enough to work 20 years from now. My daughter won't have the option of building her career. She'll be pushed to stay home. My sons won't have the option of staying home. They'll be pushed to stay at work. And the one other thing I want to point out is that it's my industry that keeps blowing it a lot of the time, presenting the wrong idea about dads. And this is a strong example. Pew Research had a study, another gender gap, men spend more time in leisure activities. And then all of these headlines jumped on those lazy dads. What I have come to understand and what we'll talk about. About in this session coming up is that anti dad stereotypes are prejudiced against women. I know it sounds backwards, but here's what happens. This is false, all right? So it, the report was that men spend more time in leisure activities. What the study actually says is on average, dads spend another 20 minutes a day on leisure or sports, but they didn't mention that moms spend about 20 more minutes a day on sleep. So it's literally counting, counteracting each other. So in terms of our overall contributions to the household, the number of hours we're putting in, paid work and, uh, and caregiving, um, there actually is equality. But people believe this backwards stuff. So why give a man paternity leave? He's not gonna use it anyway. Make sure the woman stays home. She'll get it done. Why allow a man a flexible schedule? He's going to kick up his feet and drink a beer and watch a game. He's not going to actually be taking care of his kids. Keep him at work. All of these backward ideas about men are the same thing. They're the flip side of the coin of prejudice against women. People who believe that women should not work their way up the ranks at work think that men are incapable at home. That's how it all fits together. And that's why our conversation today is going to be so important. This is how I feel every time I see it. Make it stop. All right. Um, And this is the last thing I want to tell you guys about. This is a guy who's in my book who lives here in San Francisco. His name is Marco Ponce. And he I met him when he was busing my table at Hotel Whitcomb. He works three jobs. He only sees his kids when they're asleep. And the structures that he's facing are the same thing as the structures that we're here to talk about. We need things like living wages and infrastructure and transportation and the ability to tackle all these things men are suffering too and so we have an opportunity when we start talking about this work life conflict the fact that men want the opportunity to care for our children the fact that we are struggling as well but we're doing it in the shadows when we bring that out into the light we see how we really are brethren in all this. But guys are trained not to talk about it. And that's why events like this are so important. Guys are afraid to talk about it. They're afraid they'll mistakenly, unintentionally say something offensive. So when I go to companies, I start off with exclusively male events and then bring in a few women the second time. And then we work our way up to where men also feel comfortable talking about it. And uh, I like to end with this. I ask people, what was your first dream? Not your first overnight dream, but your first uh, aspirational dream that you can remember. When I ask this, people often say, oh, I I wanted to be a a ballerina or an astronaut or a, a firefighter. But they're wrong. The first dream that we all had was the same one. It was to be held and loved and to explore this amazing world, whatever it is, with love in our lives. Look into the eyes of any baby and you know what that first dream is. But it's primal. We're so used to it being the first dream, we don't even think about it. It's literally the first dream. So what we're here to do today is huge. We can get lost sometimes in you know, the, the forest for the tree scenario, get lost in the initial things we need to do. And that is important, but let's also remember how incredibly crucial this is. What we are here to talk about is this, valuing this, valuing love. I said earlier when I showed my son that innovation is the story of humanity, but I was wrong. It's only half the story. Yes, we adapt to survive, but maybe even more than half. The other part is that we love, it might be your children. It could be your parents that you're taking care of. It could be your friends. That's something you love to do, making sure that you have love in your life. That's the other st- side of humanity. That's the other half of what we are. So putting it all together into one is really simple. Put those things together. That's what it is to be all in. Thank you very much, everyone. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you. And... Um, and so now we're going to bring our awesome uh, moder- our awesome panelists up. And as we do, I want to tell you about that. We have these two power couples who are coming up to join us right now. They are phenomenal. And, oh, by the way, everybody link in with me. That's why I show my LinkedIn. there. They say only link in with people you know. I link in with everybody. Um, so these couples that are about to join us, they are power couples. They are um, incredibly accomplished. They have spent decades working for equality of all kinds in the tech sector and more broadly. Um, and we're gonna be focusing specifically on gender equality today. And their achievements are incredible. It doesn't get any better than bringing these, these couples in. Uh, the first um, are the Coleman's, Karetha and Ken Coleman. Um, Ken was uh, was one of the first African-Americans in the tech world to work at Hewlett Packard in 1972. Uh, he went on to work in various well-known firms such as Silicon Graphics. Um, And then he launched his own software startup. And uh, Caritha was one of the first black female tech executives in Silicon Valley. She has held positions as chairwoman of the Board of Dignity Health and served as director of the nonprofit Silicon Valley Community Foundation. And I have this quote from them um, about them. Pamela Joyner, founder of Avid Partners said, quote, they frankly are key mentors to a successor generation of women and people of color in Silicon Valley and others. So let's give them a round of applause. And our second couple, um, Frida and Mitch Kapor, and um, they also have an amazing set of experiences. Uh, They met when Mitch was the head of Lotus Development Corporation, which he founded. Uh, Frida was brought in to start employee relations and organizational development. And Mitch told Frida he wanted Lotus to be the most progressive employer in the entire country. So she started off in this process of making that happen. And ever since, that's been their ethos. Uh, they later married and they created Kapor Capital and um, Kapor's Center for Social Impact. They work to create high-growth startups and have diverse, inclusive, that have in- diverse, inclusive and welcoming cultures that are baked in from the start. And we're also going to be talking about the Level Playing Field Institute which Frida founded and Project include which she co-founded. So, big round of applause for them! <laughs> all right. Hi, everybody. How you doing? Hi. Hi. So, um, I am uh, making sure, as I toss questions at you, that I'm not going to weigh in on the gender dynamics So, I'm going to toss a question at each couple. All right, and then you guys decide who's going to answer first. But I'll, I'll start with with you, the Coleman's, and, and uh, it's going to be the same question for all of you. I wanna talk to you about um, successes. I think it's important that today we can have a genuine conversation about what's worked really well, but also what hasn't. But let's start with the good news. You have seen some incredible successes in your time. And since we're here at the Women's Summit, specifically in building gender equality and bringing men into that effort. So could one of you or both of you tell us about a moment in which you had some incredible success in getting men involved in this effort? Well,
5: for me, goes uh, way back in terms of a, a very first moment, but a very powerful one, and that is when I was at uh, my first startup in the early 80s and had and was working with the two co-founders, one male and one female. And the difference that that can make because the lens is so different because it's shared, well, you guys know, the, it's shared by those two perspectives. And as a result, we actually had, and I was there very early, and so we actually had, uh, eventually, more than half the population of our company was female. But not only that, more than half of the executive staff and the management team was female. And that just always stuck with me and has sort of guided me as I've gone through my career.
8: Let's tell the same female. question to the Capers. A, a, an example of a, a great experience getting men involved in this effort.
11: <laughs> <laughs> well, there so many, and, and I want to echo what Caritha said about the 80s. I think for those of you that either weren't born or were in diapers in the <laughs> 80s, the rest of us were out there in, in corporate America, it actually, especially in tech, was a bit more diverse than it is now. Um, and so I think understanding what happened and how that got undone is is part of what's here. Um, but, you know, I can think back to starting a diversity council in 1984 at Lotus when Mitch was the CEO, uh, and we had men and women, we had people of color, we had out gay representation in 1984. Um, and so all of those were just shared issues shared problems how we're going to make lotus the most progressive employer in
8: the US. Well, you know that's interesting what you just said about it. it's a lot of it's undoing what's happened since then. Um, Mitch, can you talk about that? What do we need, what, how do we undo it?
10: I think and we're placing our emphasis at this point on working with a new generation of startups that are going to bake in uh, diversity and inclusion right from the outset. Uh, we admire and support the efforts of the big tech companies, the Googles and Facebooks, to improve their miserable numbers, or the miserable numbers <laughs> that they started with. But honestly, some of them are so successful that they don't have the motivation that they might otherwise have if we're going to be realistic, and it's just they're big ocean liners, they're hard to turn around. But we know now in the Bay Area and elsewhere there's a new generation of companies starting out and millennials have a different take on the world. Some of those companies, which are tiny today and ultimately are going to be huge, if they buy into the idea that diversity and inclusion are absolutely fundamental to the workplace, and it gets Baked in from the outset, then as they scale, the prospect is that it will scale along with
8: it. And that's hopeful. Ken, I, there was this great quote from you uh, that I saw, and uh, was it San FranciscoSFGate.com? There was a video that was up there about you, um, about both of you. But there was a quote from you in which you basically said that it's, um, it's actually easy to go into a company and see what's wrong. Right? And the tough part is, and you even see what needs to be done, but the tough part is actually getting it done. So with a focus specifically on getting men involved and getting men to support gender equality and the advancement of women, um, how do you overcome how tough it is to actually get it done? What does it take to actually get it done?
12: Well, if I know anything in the technology business specifically, it's all about people. It's all about talent. And... Talent is so critical and you can't make up for it. So to exclude any source of talent is against the best interest of the corporation. And so I just keep pushing at talent. That's one. The second thing is trying to help men overcome unconscious bias. And, and it's not as sinister as most people think. People, Men don't lay at bed at night thinking about how to screw over minorities (laughs) or women. That's not the way it is. Everybody's trying to be successful. and But against common wisdom, we would normally say what you're trying to do is optimize the upside. But the average manager is trying to minimize the downside, trying to avoid risk. So when he sees that woman or that black person walk in that room, the risk meter goes up. So all of a sudden... My, the criterion is raised because that person doesn't want to fail, and so until people and companies confront that, you know, and I and I've always just pushed at confronting that issue because you know the man will say, "Oh, the woman may quit, go home, go to have children, or whatever their you know unconscious bias is." And you have to just fight this unconscious bias, mm-hmm. you know, confront it. Yeah, I was, at, um, I
8: was at an event recently in which there was a debate, an Oxford-style debate, about whether there should be quotas, whether companies should set quotas, say we're going to have this percentage of women on a board or in the suite, C-suite by, by a certain date. Um, is that a necessity? Is that the next stage? Is that what we need to see? Don, Caritha, you want to take that?
5: Sure, I don't. I wouldn't necessarily say quotas per se, but I definitely believe that there have to be objectives. We have objectives for everything else, right? Hmm. Uh, marketing dollars, what we do in R&D, all of that. Um, but, we, but we don't consciously, most organizations don't consciously have objectives for what the organization looks like and how it represents diversity. Right. And I do think it's necessary because I believe we won't have systemic change unless that happens. Do we need to can, say, can I pick up ahead, on that?
12: Yeah. I, I, I'm passionate about this. Everything that matters in the enterprise has an objective, deliverables, and measurements. Everything. Quality, you know, customer sat, you name it. It's ludicrous to think that if you don't have diversity objectives, you'll achieve them. Right. And, yeah. And it's just... You, that's the way the cooperation runs itself. Everybody knows if it is important. It has a deliverable and objective. And so if you don't have objectives and ma- measurable, it, everybody knows it's not important. And do the different kinds of diversity go hand in hand? I mean, for
8: example, Fred, I know that what you guys do, what you, all of you do, is work for racial diversity as well and LGBT and all kinds of diversity. Um, do you find that when you push broader diversity, that that's an opportunity for more men to get involved in this effort? Does that work or do you need to segment them out and say we're going to work on on gender, we're separately going to work on on race?
12: Either. (laughs) Um,
11: I think it's a huge mistake to say we're just going to focus on gender. Um, I think it it sends a terrible message. Um, I think it says to people of color, you don't matter, wait your turn maybe we'll get to you maybe we won't and for those of you who have not read Erica Joy Baker's medium post on this topic it's really important to read her post which was entitled colorless diversity so because when we say we're just going to focus on gender I always say rich women because if we don't get specific as Ken is saying we end up focusing on white women All of the data about who benefited from affirmative action, all of the rigorous studies, I'm trained as a researcher, all the rigorous studies say the one group that benefited was white women, and yet there is all of this backlash around racial diversity. So I think we really need to look at how it all fits together and how we're all going to benefit from diverse and inclusive cultures. It's also true that the demographics of this country are changing rather dramatically. The first year in U.S. history, the 2014-2015 school year, that's already two years ago, was the first time in U.S. history that the majority of kids in K-12 education nationally were kids of color. Mm -hmm. Those are our clients, those are our employees.
8: And Mitch, when when one of these potential startups comes to you and is looking for funding, um, what do you do to make sure that the guys who are a part of this are actually committed to gender equality? And I'm saying that not to siphon out gender equality, but just because it's what we're here to talk about. So, So what do you do to make sure the guys get it? So
10: we have something called the Founders commitment. And while I'm the person with a reputation in tech, Frida is the person with the intellectual capital who put this together. What the founder's commitment says is that we will, if we want to invest, we ask that they make an actionable and accountable commitment to building in diversity into their workforce by starting with setting goals that are specific to their stage and size and sector, and then taking other actions that follow on from that. And like good venture capitalists, we help our companies. And we help our companies, particularly in this sector, by giving them training and support around building this kind of culture. So as of January of this year, all of our companies going forward make this commitment. What was interesting to us is we did a look back to the 110 companies we'd previously invested in, ask them if they wanted to opt into this, and 79 of them did. So we have a very large cohort of companies that are actively committed, and when we check in with them and talk about how the business is going, we mean how the business is going, and there are metrics about revenue, and there are metrics about workforce, and that's the conversation. And they've already signed on to that, so it's like we're just talking now we're doing what we do and they're doing what they do so it's normalized it in a kind of way you know and this, some, can i just say please, I this is a you.
5: huge deal it's, <laughs> it's really really big um and very very few investors do that but that is part of the requirement to really change the landscape so i applaud you guys for that
8: so Karitha, how can we get more investors to do that let's get all of them to do that
5: uh, that's a good question i mean i, I I think it goes back to a little bit of what Frida said. You know, if we can show people statistics uh, through time about how, especially now, if you look at the demographics that she was talking about going forward, you know, those are the future customers. And hopefully they're the future leaders. And so hopefully they will bring a different perspective as well.
8: Yeah, you know, so am sorry, I was just thinking also, ahead. I mean, a lot of people recognize that it's, it's a lot of work. And some of us are talking backstage about how, you know, they can't imagine what it would be like to fight for equality for 20 years. And you all have had success for longer than that. So um, it's got to take some kind of fuel to, to keep going. And that reminds me of a quote from you in that video, which you said, it takes courage. You have to give yourself permission, right? And that takes courage. So Fighting this fight. Tell, tell us what you mean by that. You're giving yourself permission to to keep going in this fight, and that you got to find the courage inside. You. Have well, I to think fight.
5: Valerie mentioned it a little bit in her remarks as well when she was talking about finding her voice. You know, I think that we all have to dig down deep and find our voice, especially as women leaders, uh, and women in the uh, work in the in uh, in the work group, right? Because I think we sort of are. Always a little more timid, asking our, second guessing ourselves, should I say this right now, in this moment? Guess what? If we don't say it in that moment, that moment's gonna be gone so quickly. And the thing, the other thing that Valerie talked about is, uh, being uncomfortable. Sometimes, for me, I am uncomfortable. In fact, I love that term because I think about it more so as, God, I'm always afraid, I'm afraid to say this and then I don't wanna embarrass myself and I don't wanna hurt somebody's feelings and, and yet it's so important. And so I think, you know what, it's okay to be a little uncomfortable.
8: You know, um, th- that's, that's a great point. And uh, so you two are, are parents. And uh, so, Ken, let me talk to you dad to dad. So ha- are you seeing a change in, in the younger generation of workers now that uh, men are more willing and ready to take this on? Because um, what I always find is that they only are in secret and that they're not talking about it so no one knows they are, which means they really aren't because you've got to be loud about it to be making it happen. Are you seeing a generational opportunity?
12: Uh, Yes, I, I, I agree with these guys. One in the '80s, it was more fashionable, you know, because we were in this great change going on. And when we started SGI, when I was there in the early days, we had a very simple model, which was is a safe place to work for anybody, and that was what kind of drove us. I advised Pinterest. And in that case, what we've done there is not only do we have objectives, we put them on our website.
6: Mm-hmm.
12: So we went public, which really holds yourself accountable, okay? Mm-hmm. And then and you then you have to fight the tyranny of the R. So <laughs> it's like in the early days, remember when it was do we want creativity or quality? Remember you yeah. have that debate? <laughs> and it's a yes. <laughs> the answer is yes. Mm-hmm. And so when people say Do you want diversity or speed in hiring people? Yes. (laughs) Okay, I want them both. And you can't let, there's this, the system, men will push at the tyranny of the R and say, what do you really want? You want to hire to fill these 20 jobs or do you want diversity? Yes. And we have to keep, (laughs) because a tyranny of R will kill you. Okay, and it becomes the excuse of not doing diversity.
5: And the worst one is do you want quality or do you want diversity? Oh, God. Yeah. Every time. Every time. They
12: say that all the time, so you have to give a speech.
5: All the time. Oh, yes. All the time, I'll give
12: you the test, let me give you the test. You go to somebody that you know and respect
5: mm-hmm. and
12: you say, hey, do you have any minority money manners? No. Would you be open to considering one? Oh, I don't want to lower my quality. Right. That is the first thing out of people's mouth. And I say, what is it about me
6: <laughs>
12: <laughs> that would ever lower the quality on anything? But it really pisses me off because it is where people live. It's this perception that you got to overcome and sure. if you want to fight for diversity because this perception will kill you. Right.
11: It's an assumption that what we have now is a meritocracy, mm-hmm. which... It's nonsense. Right. I'm trying not to swear. (laughs) It's bullshit. So we don't have a meritocracy, not in our education system, not in our workplaces. It's a wonderful aspiration, and we ought to keep it as an aspiration, and we ought to look really hard at the ways in which we don't live up to being meritocratic. And that's the basis on which to have a conversation with people, with young founders, and to say, We don't have a level playing field now. So let's figure out how tilted it is and let's bring it to level. And that isn't unfair advantage. That's getting rid of the unfair barriers that are already there. And if you reframe it that way, then you see things differently.
8: You know, this whole idea of um, making sure that men are part of this battle to, to build gender equality, we're, we're literally physically looking at it right here. The, you guys are, are the symbol of represent actual, like gender equality. You've supported each other's careers and you have all this tremendous success in doing it. Um, so let me talk since that you as we, we start to tie up. Mitch um, and, and Frida, how have you guys found that balance? And I'm gonna bring the same question to Ken and Caritha. How have you supported each other and still allowed your careers to, to flourish?
10: Well, look, there's been something redemptive for me personally in being with Frida, and we've now been together 20 years as a couple. We worked together before that, 35 years ago. We were not a couple. We were professional colleagues, and I had the good fortune uh, a dozen years later to get together with her. I have found my own instinct as a nerdy kid under-socialized and excluded gave me a a fine-tuned sense about the importance of inclusion. But Frida brought decades of work as an activist. Look, she was cutting middle school to go picket for the farm workers when Cesar Chavez was (laughs) organizing. (laughs) And I found that our work merged together my angel investing and later the venture capital with her framework about what kind of world we can and need to build, that social justice orientation. And it gave a kind of depth of meaning to my own life and my own work to build that in. I mean, after all, how many successful photo sharing applications does anybody ever really want to invest in? I mean, you know, it, it, it's great. But the idea that Doing what I was good at, which is seeing around corners in technology, could be applied in a deeper kind of way to build companies where you don't have to check yourself at the door. And a society that more lives up to its aspirations, I owe that all to her. And so, I mean, That's it's so a beautiful. no-brainer for me.
8: Beautiful. <laughs> yeah, you look very happy, you? you're like, yeah. <laughs> Let me bring that question to the Coleman's as well, how do you all, how do you all um, find your balance?
5: Yeah. Can you talk that, Ken? <laughs>
8: <laughs> and then we're going to be tying up, so you really got to point. <laughs> <tie> it out. <laughs> uh.
12: <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> no, uh, we, we, we've been interviewed several times lately, and I think one of the things cause we had to think about it, how this happened. Without talking about it, we've been together forty years, and without talking about it, we had shared values, <laughs> and I think, in some multiple ways, we just realized that we shared values and viewed the world the same way, and I, and I don't think I've never thought about this journey as laborious or struggle. This is kind of like why not? I mean to us, diversity thing is just it's its an is. It's like breathing. I don't know why wouldn't you care about it and do about it. And our relationship, you know, is my biggest, she's, she keeps me straight, <laughs> honest uh, and, and I've always just encouraged her. She's so talented. She's such a talented person that I think she just talked about her fears and things being politically correct, I think guys worry about that less. You know, it is what I am who I am, take it. Women, I think, tend to uh, be raised in a way that they are more sensitive to that. But sometimes that is, as is, Cheryl is, Sandberg likes to say, you know, what would you do if you're not afraid? Mm-hmm. And I think supporting, I think it's important to support women, and, be it my daughters or my wife, to say don't be afraid. Oh, yeah. You know, uh, and yeah, sometimes they'll they'll say they'll they'll say you're aggressive rather than assertive, like they'll say for guys. But so that's their problem, not your problem. Karissa, I think you did great. What do you think? Yeah, I, I think did. that was awesome.
8: <laughs> All right. Well, listen. Um, and by the way, Cheryl's in my book. She, she, I, I sat down with her. She talked about things that weren't even in, um, in in Lean In. We talked about the male side of this as well. And it's true. M- women cannot lean in if men cannot be all in, you know, at home and in every way. So there is that balance. And it's very important. And that reminds me, I didn't say it before, HarperCollins will kill me. They did this thing for Father's Day promotion where they made my ebook available for only $1.99, which is great. And then I told them I was going to be here today, so they extended it for another week. So if you read ebooks instead of real books, it's, like, super cheap right now. Um, listen, it is – but. But, but get, get the book, get whatever. I'm not going to make any money off of it probably. Just buy it because I want everyone to read it because it's about this kind of thing. Um, listen, it is not only an honor to be here today, but it's, I was just learning so much about all of you and I understand the extent to which you are pioneers who are still leading the way and you have this wisdom and knowledge about how to get it done. So it's a tremendous honor to share the stage with you. So big round of applause for them. Thank you all.
6: Thank you, Thank you. Thank
8: you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And we're out of time, so I can step up. Thank you. Okay. We're going that way? I think we go this way. I don't know. Let's just walk off this way.
1: Uh All right, wasn't that wonderful? We had two wonderful sessions back to back with Valerie Jarrett, and then now this, which you just saw. We do need our allies, and men are our allies in all this, so uh, that was a wonderful talk. Okay, we want to be interactive with you now. I want you to pull out your phones, um, and I know you all have them, and pull out your conference app. Did you take a moment to load that? Do you all have – who's loaded the app? Raise your hand. That's it? The rest of you have to get out your phone and load the app so you can be part of this poll, okay? Go ahead, do it right now, right this minute, uh, and select which polls you want to answer for this afternoon. There are three sets of questions, so go ahead and do it as I'm talking. The first question is, have you ever experienced bias in your workplace? Choice A is yes, choice B is no. The second poll, if you have experienced bias in your workplace, why do you think you experience bias? Choice A, gender. B, race or ethnicity, C, religion, D, age, E, intersectional, oh and the results are coming up instantaneously, okay, um, I'm just going to go back to those so that you can have a moment to keep on voting, and then the third question is, what is the greatest barrier to leadership diversity, choice A is stereotypes, B, lack of role models, C, lack of active recruitments, D, a limiting workplace, E exclusion, F other. Okay, can we go back to the first poll and let me see what the answers were for that? The one that said, "Have you experienced bias in your workplace?" Look at that, 90 percent yes. Isn't that interesting? If so, why do you think you experienced bias? What were the answers to that? Gender, okay, race was next. Race and age were were tied. Interesting. Other 14%. Okay, I'm, you're, I'm now. I'm curious what the other is. And religion came in last. That's very interesting. But definitely gender, and race, and um, age were the top three. Okay, and the final one. What is the greatest barrier to leadership diversity? How did we do on that? Okay, look at that. Stereotypes and bias, of roles and ability. Definitely overwhelming there. And then exclusion. A limiting workplace, culture, and expectations was next. And then it keeps on climbing. Okay, well, now we know what the overwhelming uh, greatest barrier is, right? Stereotypes and bias of roles and ability. Okay, so now that you know the results, those are some of our biggest challenges. And so that's the among the challenges we're giving to you today to help us in this fight, to end some of those stereotypes and to bring down some of the barriers. So thank you for participating. We have something else great coming up for you. I'm going to step down and someone else is going to come on up.
0: And now a special video greeting from Congresswoman Jackie Speier.
9: Good afternoon. I'm Jackie Speier and thank you to Mayor Lee, Mayor Schaff, and the Women's Foundation of California for hosting this incredible Bay Area Women's Summit. I'm sorry I can't be with you in person to feel the energy in this room. While this summit is something to celebrate, I want to take this time to talk to you about a very serious issue. Last week, I was joined on the House floor by colleagues on both sides of the aisle. Together, we read the heart-wrenching statement of the Stanford sexual assault survivor. This issue rose to national prominence after the perpetrator was sentenced to a mere six months in county jail. Why, you are probably asking. Because the judge said a longer sentence would have a, quote, severe impact, unquote, on him. How about the severe impact on the victim? That woman is a survivor in every sense of the word and her bravery continues to inspire me and so many others around the country. That is why I'm talking to you about this issue today and about your work to develop policies promoting economic equality and justice for all women. This survivor was fortunate to have an accommodating employer, but too many victims of gender-based violence are not as lucky we know that this is just one issue of gender inequality which is why your work here today and every day is so important it is why I urge you to remember these women when developing your women's economic agenda and understand the universal effort needed to achieve true equality an agenda that promotes economic equality for all women must also seek justice for all women let's work together to fight for pay equity for the long overdue ratification of the Equal Rights Amendment to the U.S. Constitution and for justice for sexual assault survivors and victims of gender-based violence. By working together, we can achieve great things for our mothers, our sisters, our daughters, and our friends. So thank you for being here, for the amazing work you do, and remember, never, ever give up. To take
0: us into our next segment, please welcome the Executive Vice President and Chief Accounting Officer, Kilroy Realty's Heidi Roth.
13: Good afternoon. What an amazing program we've had today, and I think the best is yet to come. I am pleased to be here today representing Kilroy Realty as an empowerment sponsor for this important event and it is my honor to introduce our next speaker, Julie Hanna. Julie will be speaking to us about the importance of supporting women entrepreneurs. Julie is a technology entrepreneur, investor and advisor to companies and public institutions globally. She has been a founder, CEO or founding executive of five successful Silicon Valley companies and she currently serves as the executive chair of the board at Kiva the world's largest crowd-lending marketplace for global entrepreneurs. During her tenure, Kiva has delivered nearly $1 billion in loans to 2 million entrepreneurs, 70% of whom are women. Among her many accolades, in recognition of her leadership, she was honored as a United States woman icon of APEC, and she is also a recipient of the 2016 Global Empowerment Award quite an impressive resume. And I look forward to what she has to say. So please join me in welcoming Julie Hanna to the stage.
14: Today's a celebration of one of the most hopeful truths that I know that one dream can transform a million realities and it's all that ever has because no matter who you are, where you're from, what circumstances or injustices you face, dreams don't discriminate and they liberate us from all prejudice. Connecting the dots on my own life helped me understand how dreams had shaped my journey. A journey that's taken me to the front lines of the tech revolution, but that began on the front lines of war. And dreams that were born out of my heritage as an Egyptian, as a refugee, and an immigrant. The war was Black September And it came without warning and brought darkness to our door. One of my earliest memories in childhood was of waking to find that I was in my father's arms as he ran towards a hole in the ground and bombs fell on our heads. And we lived in that hole, not knowing what would happen to us. Hours became days, days became weeks. And when we came out, everything that was familiar to us had been torn apart. And then the bombs would come again and we'd return to that hole. My last memory of Black September was of running with my classmates. We were running to play and then we were running for our lives as army tanks opened fire on our one room schoolhouse. I was five years old, and I found myself running alone, terrified I'd never see my family again. But I was lucky, we escaped with my family, and we made our way to Beirut. And then the Lebanese Civil War found its way to our door again. And again, we were lucky. We eventually immigrated to the United States. And with that, we brought a great hope for building a new life in a new land. But I quickly saw that hope turned to struggle. My parents were educated and resourceful, but they couldn't find work. We didn't have a place to live. And they were very kind and generous people who helped us along the way. There was always a look in their eyes I didn't understand, an expression on my parents' face I didn't understand and a feeling inside that I didn't know how to explain to myself as a child. And it's taken me the better part of a lifetime to realize that that look in those kind people's eyes was pity. That the expression on my parents face was that their dignity being chipped away. And that feeling inside of me was deep shame. It's taken me the better part of a lifetime to realize that if your circumstances are broken, it doesn't mean that you are broken. I often think about that classroom and I wonder what happened to my classmates. What I know for sure is that the access to opportunity that I received is likely the most important difference between us as human beings. And I'm reminded of that every time I see images of today's refugees, I'm reminded of the running, of the fleeing, I'm reminded of the fine line that divides us, a line that I believe we all walk. Yesterday was World Refugee Day, reminding us all that there are more displaced people over 60 million, more than in all of World War II combined. My story is far from unique, it is the story of millions. I use my voice to tell it because they can't. And I tell it because there is a gift in those experiences because they taught me to dream of a better future. They made me dream of a world that understands that pity is the near enemy of compassion. They made me dream of a world that understands and that regards dignity as an inalienable human right. They made me dream of a world that understands that talent is universal, but opportunity is not. A world that understands that a cornerstone of justice is fair access. And 22 years ago, I came to San Francisco, to Silicon Valley, with those dreams and a computer science degree, and dreams of building that future. A future that used technology to enable the kind of fair access my family couldn't get. That maybe, just maybe, it could give a little bit of power to people who didn't have it. That was a future I wanted to create and it's a a future that I'm proud to say is a part of our present. 10 years ago, Kiva pioneered what we now know as crowdfunding to reach and democratize access to capital to underserved entrepreneurs living in the riskiest parts of the world, including our own backyard here, most of whom are women. In that first year, Kiva attracted 3,000 people that made loans of a million dollars. This is a time-lapsed real loans being made. Each light missile is a loan going out, each light missile returning is a loan being repaid. Today, 3,000 lenders make a million dollars in loans. Every three or four days, a loan is made every four to seven seconds. And today, as you heard, uh, 2 million entrepreneurs have been reached around the world. I'm proud, very deeply proud that 1.5 million of those are women. It's a grassroots... (laughs) There's citizen lenders in literally 190 countries who've made loans. It's forming kind of this grassroots world's bank that's for the people, by the people, that is enabling access to capital in a radically decentralized and crucially equitable way. And it's women like Kiva's first borrower, Elizabeth Amala, a widowed mother of five and a fishmonger who took a $500 loan and grew her business enough so that she could begin sending her five children to school. It's women like the Cambodian uh, Cambodian sewing co-op made up of survivors of sex trafficking who are rebuilding their lives one sewing machine at a time. It's women like the founders of Creole Essence in Haiti who took a $100,000 loan and created 300 jobs to create beauty products from black castor oil. In our own backyard, it's women like Teresa Goines from Old School Cafe. Who was a, a corrections officer and decided she wanted to start a 1940 supper club to give jobs and a future beyond prison to gang members and kids that were at risk. And today every year 25 kids go on to rebuild their lives and she has dreams of starting old school cafes all over the country. And it's like, it's entrepreneurs like Shauna and Renee, the founders of Mamacita Cafe in Oakland who are similarly fighting rising poverty levels by giving jobs and a dignity building community to young women who've had a tough break, giving them a break. There are 200 entrepreneurs in the Bay Area thanks to support from Mayor Ed Lee and to partnership and collaboration from the incomparable Mayor Libby Schaaf in Oakland that have received loans over the past few years in the Bay Area. And it's men like Arasas Kamani, a 73-year-old retired school teacher who became an entrepreneur because he has dreams of sending his six daughters not just to school, but to college. And I'm really proud of the fact that Kiva is helping the world understand that the fastest way to transform a society is to invest in women because women invest 90% of their income in others. And these loans begin by changing a woman's life, but quickly they change her family's life and the communities ultimately planting the seeds that can change the fate of a nation. And as proud as I am of those things, I know that our work has just begun because in a world where half the world's population lives on less than $2 a day, where women's hands do 66% of the work, grow 50% of our food, and yet only earn 10% of the income and own 1% of the land, that our work has just begun. My dream today is of reaching a billion entrepreneur. My dream today is that all of you will join this movement by investing in Kiva, by investing in the entrepreneurs that Kiva supports. Because when we contribute to this virtuous cycle of humanity, we teach every woman and child to dream. And we give back to the world a portion of its lost heart. One dream can change a million realities. It's all that ever has. And that's the most hopeful truth that I know. Thank you so much.
0: Please welcome to the stage, KRON Channel 4 anchor, Pam Moore.
15: Everybody, I am so happy to be here because I am going to be introducing you to a dynamic set of women who have wonderful experiences that will help us all as we go back to our workplaces or as we go home and begin to plan how we want to make our futures better. Uh, We want you to know that we want to explore in this mentoring and networking opportunity session. Explore what it means to lead a business, to start a business, to support women in business and on their jobs in general and we hope that you will understand why it is important for women, for you, to realize your dreams in the workplace. So here is your esteemed panel with national and international experience. We start with Marnie Levine, the Chief Operating Officer for Instagram. (laughs) Leah Buskey, the founder of TaskRabbit. And Amy Lynch, the Vice President of the West Division Engineering Operations for Comcast. All right, let's get going. So we've been talking a lot backstage about what kinds of things would be really relevant to share with the audience today as we're all coming from different points of view, different kinds of jobs. Some of you are in corporate America. Some of you have your own small businesses. But there are some themes that kind of run the gamut. And I think we're going to start with the whole issue of mentoring. And some people think that's a benign concept. Oh, you get somebody who's going to help you with your work. But it's really a deep relationship if you can find good mentors in your life. So let me start down at the end because you are also involved with the LeanIn.org project, which yep. is all about supporting women. Talk a little bit about that, Marnie.
16: Yeah, well, um, I think that mentoring is incredibly important because, uh, mostly because you can't be what you can't see. And so no matter what industry you're in, no matter what part of the world you live in, um, no matter what level you're in, everybody can benefit from having a mentor. And I'll just start with one quick story which was that in 1995 I worked at the US Department of Treasury in Washington DC and I walked into a uh, very serious, fancy Imposing looking conference room and it was, uh, oversubscribed. There was only standing room and, uh, and I was one of the few women who were in the room and I was probably about 20 years younger than everybody else. And I saw this one person sitting at the table and she was going like this. You know, coming over and she was literally waving me over to come sit at the table. And that person was Sheryl Sandberg. And what she was (laughs) saying to me was, as it says in her book, Lean In, sit at the table. That's what she was telling me to do. But what she was really saying was your voice matters and you have something to contribute. And so come sit at the table and use it. And I really feel like I have been the beneficiary of that kind of mentorship from her, but also mentorship from so many others. And so as a result of that, I really try to um, take my responsibility to pay it forward to others uh, throughout the course of my career. So tell, tell the Michelle Obama
15: story, the three friends.
16: Yeah, so last week, the White House had um, the State of Women Conference. And um, I heard Michelle Obama say something that really resonated with me. And what she said is that in life, you need to have three types of friends. The first is the person who walks ahead of you and paves the way for you. Somebody who you can look up to. And for me, that person is probably somebody like Sheryl Sandberg in that story that I just told you. Um, She also said that you need to have those friends who walk alongside of you, who give you the support and the encouragement that you need. And that can be in many, that can come in many different forms. For me, um, when I was in Washington, D.C., I moved here about nine months ago, but when I was in Washington, D.C., I had a book group, and that book group really served as my support network, my uh, cheering squad, the group that I sorted out issues with. Or it can be somebody like your mother, it can be somebody uh, who you do yoga with, and it's important to recognize that mentorship can come in all forms and fashions and can be around you in um, lots of different ways. And then the third type of person is the one who is behind you, who you need to remember to reach back with, back for and, um, and pull forward. And so in my role at Instagram, um, and before that at Facebook, what, and in other parts of life, what I've tried to do is consciously think about uh... the mentoring relationship that i have with different people Um and that might come in the form of inviting somebody to a meeting who wouldn't normally go to that meeting so that they could see it um, you know, exposing somebody to a new function, uh, you know, if a person was in communications, maybe take them to an advertising meeting so that they could be exposed uh, to new things. And so I think when you consciously think about what can I do for somebody
15: else to expose them, that's how we pay it forward and bring other people yeah. along. all right. So Leah, you're the founder of Taskware. This is your own baby. Mm-hmm. So was mentoring relevant and you getting to the point where you started your own company?
17: Uh, absolutely. It was my first baby. Um, and <laughs> I'm expecting them to I get out. here <laughs> in a few weeks. Um, so yeah, absolutely. Early on, you know, I started my career as a software engineer at IBM. And all I really knew how to do was code and program and that was my background. I didn't know anything about starting a company or fundraising or marketing or building a team, nothing. And so I really depended early on. Um, do you want me to get that for you? I'm so sorry. (laughs) I don't know why that started going off. Um, I really depended early on, on mentors that I met and networked with and not all of them were women. Actually, one of my greatest mentors, uh, is a man, Scott Griffith, who was the founder, uh, the CEO of Zipcar, uh, back in Boston where I founded my own company. And uh, he and I really hit it off in the early days of TaskRabbit, and he really understood what I was building with TaskRabbit because it was very similar to his mission and vision with Zipcar. And he really taught me everything in the early days about how to get started and how to build a team and how to fundraise. And so I think, you know, the key is, is to look for mentors, as Marnie suggested, that I know are ahead of you, are where you want to be, but I think you have to do it in a really authentic way as well. You can't, Force it um, and you have to find people that you just really connect with and really jive with and um, have an authentic relationship with and and I was lucky enough to find those people in Scott and in others that really helped me get started early on
15: so many of us are afraid we're intimidated because of the environments we may work in um, here I am sitting next to Amy who is over how many men are you I mean well first of all how many employees and most of those
18: men <laughs> Uh, my last role was uh, leading 2,600 individuals in the technical operations space for Comcast.
15: Engineering, by uh, the way. Many of
18: them on the uh, technical operations side and, and may, many having engineering um, backgrounds as having well.
15: Having to accept you as their boss.
18: That's right. That's right. And I was, um, engineering for me, I've, my journey has been, um, I did not start in engineering. I started um, with in technology and telecommunications at an early age as an intern in the finance department. And my first um, boss was a woman who had higher expectations than my mother. If you're, you know, if, if you've got a, a tough mother, you might appreciate that. And um, she was really not only a boss but a great mentor to me. And um, for me, my history has been, um, I've had some pretty amazing mentors along my journey, and I look at my career as a journey. I started in finance finance, then got into marketing analytics. Um, and through marketing analytics, it opened the door, and to get into product operations, and then from product operations, um, was asked to step into, um, a, you know, a, an ops role. Where I worked at a startup here in Silicon Valley during the kind of dot-com days, and it but was were these your dreams along the it, way. It was. I mean, my path changed, and you know, I was okay with that because I had um, surrounded myself with um, really great people who were. Allowing me to learn and help to coach and guide me and invested in me either through time or experience. And as a result of that, um, I was able to take on um, many different roles and by virtue of that, you know, reinvent myself. Yeah,
15: Um, and a lot of this can apply whether you're in the corporate structure or whether you're in a small company that is finding people who can help support your dreams. I guess, but first clarifying what those dreams are, would you say? Right, and
18: I think just to build, um, you know, on what Leah said, you know, on the mentoring side, really mentoring, I view, at the core of it is connecting people to what they're passionate about and helping to guide people. And as a result of the great mentors I've had in my life, you know, as you mentioned, Marnie, I think of mentoring not as just a pay it forward um, concept, but it is our responsibility, I think, as women and as leaders. Um, to do that and spend time with individuals to, uh, to connect them to other aspects of the business, but also to connect them to really what inspires them and help
15: figure that out. So what are you three women finding that other women in the workplace are afraid of? What do you see holding people back? I'd
17: Go ahead, the, I Start. mean, I would say the unknown. I think so many times I see with my team uh, at TaskRabbit, you know, if, if they don't know a different functional area or they don't know how a meeting runs or they've never seen something, um, uh, run before, then they're afraid of the unknown. And I think so many times, uh, we as women can, you know, uh, hold our own selves back by just overthinking too much what could go wrong or how we might fail or, or what might be scary or unknown. And I think just being able to have the mentality to be open to learning, be open to failing, be open to making mistakes, um, but just being open to what, what you don't know and having enough confidence in yourself that you're going to be able to learn it and pick it up very quickly i think is a really important skill um you know that i continue to work yeah. on on a daily basis as well
18: yeah. yeah there's a there's a saying you know the best leaders are the best learners and i think mm-hmm. you know further to your point it's um you know, fear of failure and not knowing everything and I think that's where, you know, having great mentors help because then you can bounce ideas off of them. And you know, one of the reasons why I love working at Comcast is they take professional development and learning very seriously and invest in people. Talk um, about the boot camp. Yeah. Um <laughs> the boot camp. Uh, we uh you know as one of our in looking across the grand scheme of things, um, in particular in California, there weren't a lot of women in the technology space or technical operations space. And so um, we've had, as I'm sure you have, the number of women say, because I like, you know, as my mother would say, I like to let my little light shine. You know, I'll, I'll wear the bling sometimes and the painted nails, and that is not technically, I think, what – you know, people think about. It. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so, um, part of, you know, I've had a number of women come up and say, Hey, I'm interested in under, I like products. I like technology. I like and curious how, you know, the network works. You know, how do I get into technical operations? And so most recently in the last two years, we set up a woman's boot camp because it really is, to your point, trying to create a safe space for people to learn, um, and really, allow them to, uh, you know, to build upon their current skill level and possibly jump into another role and be very good at it.
15: Women in male-dominated professions in particular, and that can be any wide range of things, um, often do, though, express feeling intimidated. Uh, afraid to express their ideas, um, expry, afraid to reach out, that they might be looked at as, oh, did you hear what she said? That wasn't a smart question at all. And then you'll hear it the next day said by somebody else. Um, you know, you hear those kinds of stories and certainly we've talked about it in some of the earlier sessions. How have you confronted some of those issues, Marnie, throughout your career? I think, um, I think changing one's mindset is really
16: important. And it goes back to your last question, but it's also um, related to this question. Women tend to prepare. We're really good at preparing for things. And the way women often think about, think about things is, if I study this or if I do this job, then will it lead to this or to that or to the other thing? When I was in business school, there was no way that I could have prepared to be COO of Instagram because Instagram didn't exist. <laughs> We've only been around for five years. The job of COO, did not exist, it's different in every single company. And so you define what that role looks like and what that role means, or in this particular case, I define what it means. Um, and it's constantly changing. That's what makes it exciting that there is no particular playbook for the job. And you have to really sort of um, look around and think about the needs of the business and shift your role and where you're, where you're having impact. So I think that if your mindset is that, um, you will learn on the job and that you are smart and that you'll apply yourself. Um, I think that it can help you uh, take more risk and it can also help you realize that, recognize that um, you'll add value uh, wherever you are. I also um, just think it's interesting that, um, I read I read something recently by um, an author, Liz Wiseman, who wrote this book about rookie smarts um, and the way i've thought about it is um that you have a rookie advantage that being a rookie or being new to something is in fact a strength not a weakness because people who are steeped in something and they've been around it are um are limited by conventional wisdom the way it's always been done um and they are more likely to uh Gloss over things and miss just key things. And so, if you take that fresh perspective, um, you know, new eyes on things, and think about how um, your first read is your best read, you will be able to add value in nearly every situation. The key is maintaining that mindset, not just in the in your first couple months on a job,
15: but in year 3, in year 5, in year 10. Yeah. Right. Have you had any difficult experiences that really were either pivotal in terms of helping you move forward and learn a lot about your own strength and, and your own kahuna, so to speak, um, that helped you, that at the time you felt like, boy, this is going to be over for me? Have there been instances where you felt you had to step out, uh, but you made a mistake? They came back to help you later.
17: I mean, I I, I think for me, building off what what Marnie just said as well, there was definitely a point early on when I was founding TaskRabbit where I was deciding to leave IBM or stay at IBM. And, you know, IBM is a wonderful place to work, very stable, um, you know, was getting a great salary, but I knew that I had these other skills that I wanted to develop, uh, but I didn't know exactly what they were. I just knew that there were other things I wanted to do. And I remember having this conversation with myself um, that was basically talking myself into making that leap into quitting my job at IBM, into founding this company, into building something from scratch that no one had ever built before. And I remember, and this sounds so funny, I remember saying to myself, this isn't rocket science. (laughs) Like, (laughs) I should be able to figure out whatever I need to along the way. And I think that once I made that mental shift, everything else just sort of, the sea just sort of parted. And I think you do have to make that mental shift as as Marnie stated. And I think that moment for me was a key pivotal moment, uh, where I, I overcame sort of myself mentally holding me back from something that I wanted to figure out something that I wanted to do and learn on my own,
18: Mm -hmm. Amy, I. In, in reflection, often I look back on those things that for me have been more challenging as either opportunity or learning moments. And, um, you know, I kind of think back or reflect back on to um, literally working in Silicon Valley at this Internet startup and um, working with many of the engineers nationally to stand up what we call the internet today and I'm dating myself and there was such <laughs> a time and that was you know when five meg was fast and apps were something you ate before dinner right <laughs> um, and it was standing you know this infrastructure up helping to launch it and then later on being in the space to see this company um, have its assets and intelligence sold <laughs> to um, to, uh, you know, many of the cable companies and AT&T and then asking myself, what do I want to do next? And I think part of the, the, the moment there was realizing that I could do what I wanted and the biggest challenge was figuring out what is it that I really want to do and how do I want to contribute and give back? Um, and And so it was a lot of time spent thinking through what 's meaningful for me, what are my core values and um, it really led me um, somewhat i think to where I am today to 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 work for Comcast because as a company its core values of you know of integrity of learning of a creature uh, a culture of collaboration and inclusion um, is really centered in um, at my core so it feels like you know and stepping into it
15: coming home and working for what about those women who work in places which are not as supportive which don't allow you to set up a boot camp like that which you know maybe are even more resistant are still coming to understand the value of women in the workplace what do you say to those women marnie so
16: I have an unusual situation, which is that we have Cheryl Sandberg as the COO of Facebook. Facebook owns Instagram. And so she is really leading the company, um, in these, in these conversations, in these dialogues. So I think step one is for people like me who come from companies where we're doing it pretty well, uh, to talk about what the things are. When I first got to Facebook, I was just amazed by what the company was doing and what Cheryl and Mark were doing to lead people um, in having these conversations. When I first started in 2010, I think it was, we had a women's leadership conference. That women's leadership conference was about uh thirty women, maybe twenty five, sitting in a conference room somewhere off site. We talked about a couple things. I remember Deb Gruenfeld from Stanford came and talked about uh nonverbal behavior. We kind of practiced what it felt like to like spread our legs out, put our arms <laughs> behind our head and say the things wrongly. Um, you know, we we Cheryl gave some closing remarks and we wrapped it up for the day. This year We had a huge conference center like this for Women's Leadership Day. It comes with lots of t-shirts, outside speakers, unbelievably moving sessions, people being incredibly open and candid about their challenges, their struggles, their triumphs, you know, their hopes and their dreams. And it's meant to create this culture where we talk about these issues, but not on a one-time basis. Because then when we go back to work, what we do is we have, you know, women at Facebook groups, or we have women at Instagram groups, or we have lean-in circles, um, you know, at, at work and we just have and we just train managers to have conversations with people to have conversations about you know how is uh you know how is it working for you like do you have enough flexibility are you able to do all the things that you want to do are you doing your best work here and so I think learning from that having these conversations and then sharing them with others so that you can then take them back to your workplace and say, hey, it'd be great. It may only be five or six or seven people getting together for that first women's leadership conference, but it turns into something bigger once um, others see
15: that there's a real benefit in having those forums. Yeah. So maybe encouraging women at their own places of work to, to begin small, have a women's lunch. Exactly. Where just people get together, talk about their concerns and issues. What about the family component? So many women have children, or they're taking care of parents. Um, they may not have an extended support system, and sometimes having those families can hurt them in the workplace. Um, and I guess I will start with the <laughs> mom. Sometimes that does work. You know, men look down on women who are, oh, they've got to go take care of the kids now.
17: Mm-hmm. Um, well. the way we think about it at TaskRabbit is we really try to look at providing uh, an equal program for both men and women in the workplace regarding families. Something that I really believe strongly in is that, you know, men should have just as much paternity leave as women. And one of the reasons I believe that is because when you're sitting uh, in a work environment and a woman who's you know pregnant takes her you know 3 to 4 months of maternity leave the man sitting next to her might be thinking like oh i'm going to have to like pick up all the extra work and um you know when when am i going to get paid back for that well You can get paid back for that when you take a paternity leave. And I think it just equals and levels out the playing field when we start to think about benefits around family that are equal on both sides Mm -hmm. for both men and women. But you guys
7: are at
15: really progressive companies. This is not necessarily the norm. I mean, across the nation, it's not the norm. So for women who are not in progressive companies, what's your word of advice? I mean, I have. Dealing with all of these little issues. I think it, I think it comes
16: down to something pretty basic that you at least have to try first start with say something Mm -hmm. yeah because if they don't know that the problem exists it's really hard to address it Mm -hmm. and if you give people at work the benefit of the doubt that they would like to be helpful that they would like to be accommodating I know it may not always be the case, but at least try and say something. I'll give you one particular example. Sheryl Sandberg, again, famously talked about how um, she would leave work at 5.30 every day. I was living in Washington, D.C. At, this, at the time, working for Facebook. We would have meetings, you know, 5.30 Washington, D.C. time was 2.30 here Right smack in the middle of the day, lots and lots of meetings uh, were going on. And I commented to her that, you know, it wasn't clear to me that I was going to be able to get out of work at 530 to go have dinner with my two kids and my husband. It just really wasn't possible given the time difference and what was going on. And you can imagine how people in Europe feel about that, right, when, you, when the time differences happen. And she said, well, we should make it work for you. And so she started with, she did not schedule any meetings that involved the people in Washington, D.C. during the window, you know, after 5.30 our time, right? And then she said to other people, I hope you'll be considerate about thinking about when you're scheduling meetings, how does it affect people in Europe or Washington, D.C.? When I heard her say that, then I started thinking about, well, what time are our meetings taking place? And how many times a week are people from London staying up until whatever hour? And so... The first step is just saying something so that if somebody wants to take action, they can. Okay.
15: And we're only a couple of minutes left, so I'd like to get a nugget that, from each of you, that these women can take home, uh, that will help them in terms of mentoring, empowering themselves in the workplace. What's your best advice?
18: My advice would be be the example, y- you know, you, for, for others, um, uh, there's, there's a lot of people who want to, um, there's a lot of people out there who would like mentors, if you will. Um, and they, in being the example and reaching out to individuals and um, talking to them, you talk about brown bag lunches, right? Or, you know, getting women together. Um, if you think that there's a need, don't be afraid to step up Let's and be part it. of the solution. Yeah, I like that.
17: I think for me, um It's about really networking and coming to events like this and meeting new people. And you just never know. Where connections are going to take you. And there's been so many times in my entrepreneurial journey over the last eight years where I never would have thought that one dot would have connected ten, ten dots later to something amazing. You just never know. So take advantage of those opportunities and, and network and meet new people and talk about what you're passionate about. And you just never know where that's going to
18: take you. I just want, on what Leah says, one of my women bosses told me there's only one vowel difference between networking and not working. Uh your
6: oh. network. to your point. That's
18: good. Oh, that is very good. That's good. Yeah. Um, I would say two things. One is
16: be open. So the more open you are with, um, whether it's your uh, boss or manager or your peers, mentoring takes uh, lots of different forms. And so the more open you are, the more benefits you can get from other people. I remember when I worked in the White House, I said to my male boss, Larry Summers at the time, if we don't get the right kind of laptops, at work, like families are going to fall apart because it's really causing issues. I would say the second thing is just to recognize mentoring, um, when it's happening. I think a lot of times people overlook it. One way to think about it, it's a little bit like dating. You know how there are just some people who you go on a date with or back when I was dating, (laughs) you go on a date and some dates aren't so great. They're harder. It's harder to make conversation other dates are easier, they're more fun, you get along, you go the next you go to the next date, the next date, and suddenly you're in a relationship. You're getting something out of it, the other person's getting something out of it, and you never had to define it. That is what a good mentoring relationship is all about. You're in it, but you may not have ever had to define it. And so it's important to recognize
15: what mentoring relationships are that are around you. Yeah. I think it's really important that All of us remember you are not alone. There are women throughout this building right now who are anxious to help and be supportive. There are women in the places where you work and men who will be supportive to you. But you do have to step out of your fear, be courageous, and know that you will get the answers you need to make your life better. So thanks to all of our panel. Thank you. We Enjoyed having you. Thank you. Good
3: job. That way? You exit that way.
0: Please welcome back, Twee-boo.
1: Thank you again, voice of God. Um, I've had such a great day. Have you had a great afternoon and a great day as well? And, and, you know, it's so great to see Pam Moore up here uh, talking about mentorship and about generosity toward other women because I have to say that she was kind to me when I, uh, when I took over KQED Newsroom two and a half years ago and became its host. She actually sent me a handwritten letter. Who does that anymore? Sends me a handwritten letter encouraging me to say that she watches the show every week, how much she enjoys it, and that I'm doing a good job. She is that amazing. She really is. And, um, you know, I I want to share with you a little bit of what I took away from today's program. Um, and that is, as I look around and observe the reactions in the audience, what I'm really struck by is the intimacy and the sense of community here today. And I hope that you feel it too, that that we really are, all of us, in it together. And I hope you feel that. And my other lesson is uh, from valerie jarrett 's uh, talk. So note to self if obama, if president obama 's senior advisor tells you, "Do not run for something, do not listen. <laughs> Go ahead and run for it. Um, but seriously, I think, I think her, her final message about how when she looks back and thinks that she did not aspire high enough is a lesson to us all and um, her other point, and I wrote it down, and she said, don't be afraid to change paths. I would actually add to that. I would also add to that, don't be afraid to stray from the path so that that someone else charted for you. I mean, as an immigrant child, my immigrant parents, of course, wanted me to be a doctor, a lawyer, or, because we're in Silicon Valley, a computer engineer. Uh, and, and in my senior year of college, when my mom found out I was majoring in rhetoric at UC Berkeley, she had a very long pause. And she looks at me, and she goes, you know, sweetie, I know that we don't have much money and that you worked your way through college and paid for college yourself. But if you want to start over, it's not too late. We will pay for you to go back to school to be a computer engineer at San Jose State true story (laughs) Uh, and i said no i wanted to be a journalist shock right because 20 years ago there were no vietnamese americans in broadcasting in the bay area and so there was no one that she could point to and say well if he did it or she did it you can too she really did not want me to do it she did not think i could do it and so i just thought you know i had nothing to lose i was in my 20s if it didn't work out i would do something else fortunately it worked out but the lesson here is that the lesson here is that even if it didn't work out, it would have been okay. So my message to all of you is to, is to listen to your inner voice, follow your passion. I think it will always guide you in the right direction. So I have been really inspired by today. I hope you were too. And now the mayors will show us why they are the great inspirational leaders they are by moving us to action. So please welcome back Mayors Ed Lee and Libby Schaff.
2: An amazing day it's been, huh? Well, let me let me begin by also just thanking all of our speakers for their presentations, their inspiration, not just the men and women here today, but to the hundreds that watched the summit live and on, in their homes and on their desks today, I wanna thank you all. I wanna thank the nonprofits and the advocates that we work with every single day to make sure equity and non-discrimination is Uh, the principles that we live by. And the conversations that we started today, they're not gonna end here. In fact, this shouldn't be looked at as a beginning or end. A commitment is forever. Are we right? Yep. All right. Marisha. So I told you
19: at the beginning of this summit, and I gotta say thank you all for still being here because this is actually what you came here for. I'm just telling you. Mayor Lee promised me that this would not be just another women's networking event, that there would be action, there would be results, there would be outcomes. And so I want each and every one of you to look on your tables. There are pledge cards and I want you to start thinking about what is the action that I will promise to take today to do one thing, one thing to, Take something I heard today, something that I talked to about the other women that were here today, or other allies that were here today, and and do it myself to address all of the different issues that we lifted up today. And I'm gonna I'm gonna just demonstrate because I think it's always good to model good behavior. I am going to, from the stage right now, make a loan to a woman entrepreneur. Her name is Francie. She is uh, Laotian. She has a great cafe, Cafe Talavera. It's right by Oakland City Hall. And she's looking to raise Oh good, do you know her? Yeah, she's a bomb, right? You got you gotta let her know. I'm like like calling her out from the stage here. All right, and I'm gonna I'm gonna make a loan to her because she this will help her hire two employees so that she can expand her catering business. And this is so great. I'm just doing this on my phone. Aren't these things great? What did we do before we had these? So go to kiva.org and I just put lend, check out, boom. Francie has some money in her account right now. All right, right. that is action.
2: That's action, that's action.
19: So think of something that you're gonna do. I know we're about to hear from some of our other business leaders, political leaders, their pledges that they're making the action. We are not just here to talk, ladies. We are here to take action. Let's do it. Start thinking about what you are gonna do today.
0: And now video pledges from the San Francisco Board Supervisors, Malia Cohen and Katie Tang. I'm Supervisor Malia Cohen. I represent District 10, the southeastern corner of San Francisco. And to move the world forward, I pledge to work my heart out to ensure that more women and people of color are elected into all levels of government.
4: I'm Katie Tang with the San Francisco
19: Board of Supervisors. To move the world forward, I pledge to support or spearhead policies, making it more family friendly for parents, and especially women returning to work after having a
0: child. Please welcome corporate pledge presenters Julie Kane, Senior Vice President and Chief Ethics and Compliance Officer at PG&E, Michelle Fleury, Senior Director Data Protection Office at Cisco, and welcome back Kaisers Janet Liang.
20: Good afternoon. I'm Julie Kane, Senior Vice President and Chief Ethics Compliance Officer at PG&E. I've been with the company for a little over a year now, and I'm very encouraged by what I've seen PG&E do to promote opportunity and empower women in the workplace. It's an honor to be here today and to be working with Mayor Lee, Mayor Schaff, and other Bay Area companies on the important issues we've been discussing all day. We know collectively we can do more, and that starts with challenging ourselves to go further and then following through on what we say we're going to do. So let me speak to you about PG&E's pledge. At pg and we are proud over the past year to have added more than 60 mother's rooms at our facilities, equipped with hospital grade pumps and refrigerators to be used by nursing moms. Now, for those of you who are around my age, you might not know what a big deal this is, but at the time I was having my children, if I was trying to pump breast milk for them, I would go into a bathroom stall, close the door, do what I had to do, hopefully put it in a little thermos bottle in some little weird refrigerator in the pantry and get it home to my kids. So this is a big deal and we're really proud of it. I know even if you didn't go through what those of us who are in our 40s or 50s, maybe 60s did, you can appreciate that everything we can do do to accommodate women returning to the workplace is a great thing. We're also proud to have increased our spending with women-owned suppliers by 41% over the past five years. Last year, PG&E spent $209 million with women-owned businesses, including many here in California. At pg and we believe women's economic empowerment is critical because women account for half of the U.S. workforce, over half of college graduates, and over 70% of household purchasing power. That's also a big deal. In addition, research shows that companies with higher representation of women on the board of directors often have better performance in return on equity, return on sales, and return on invested capital. Yet while the percentage of women on boards in California has risen, it was only 13 percent in 2015. We can do better than that. We have three amazing and accomplished women on our board of directors and we're very proud of that. Clearly empowering women isn't just the right thing to do, it's good for business and the economy. And although we still have some work to do, we are proud at PGE to have 14 female officers. And for the first time in PG&E's history, we have a woman, Geisha Williams, serving as president of our electric business. Moving forward, we are committed to continue to support women in the workplace by redesigning our benefit packages to offer paid parental leave benefits in addition to spending $1.7 million in 2016 on education and workforce development programs that help increase the number of women in non-traditional trade fields. We want to ensure we have a diverse workforce that reflects the communities we serve. In the end, we want to be part of the movement in the Bay Area and California to go beyond business as usual and create a world of opportunity for women to contribute, to lead, and to thrive. Thank you.
21: Cisco is pleased to be here at the Bay Area Women's Summit as an equity leader sponsor and to be a founding signer of the White House Equal Pay Pledge. I'm honored. To be here with you to share that pledge. As a global company that has always been dedicated to fair pay, we recognize that achieving it is a journey and an ongoing commitment. We are committed to driving fairness and equity in our own business, but also to play a leadership role in this critical initiative. Within Cisco, we've designed a pay parity framework to expand our ability to achieve that goal to all employees and ensure that they are paid fairly and equitably. Based on a holistic approach that includes everyone, and that's both gender and ethnicity, it introduces powerful new analytics and targeted strategies that allow us to identify critical factors and root causes that influence pay parity to validate parity through regular testing, using findings to enhance Cisco's already existing guidelines in that area. And finally, to proactively monitor, intervene, and minimize those disparities over time. Ensuring that our people share in our mutual success through compensation strategies that focus on pay for performance, market competitiveness, and fairness and equity is a key promise at the heart of our people strategies. Pay parity helps us build the trusting environment that drives the best teams, allows us to retain the best talent, and positions us as a top employer. Our pay parity strategies include regular reviews of the comprehensive data that we've gathered and monitoring of our environment. When we identify gaps, We're committed to fixing them by fully funding robust solutions that we can continue, or so we can continue to be, an important economic contributor
7: here in the Bay Area
21: and around the world. Thank you.
7: Uh, Good afternoon. I spoke to you earlier about Kaiser Permanente's uh, commitment in our work as both a caregiver and a business and how we operate and as an employer uh, to address uh, gender equality and equity. And I'd like to take this moment to talk to you about how we want to be an agent for social change. And we were so moved. uh, We just uh, met um, leaders from Kiva and learned about the organization and we're so moved by what they do. And we see a connection with our own observations that when individuals and families live in poverty or are struggling to make ends meet, they don't have what they consider the luxury to worry about their health. They simply cannot come into the office for preventative care uh, or to talk about how to stay healthy or to do women, pregnant women, don't have the time to come in for prenatal visits because they're trying to make ends meet. And so today uh, we want to be an agent for social change. We like to um, address poverty here in the local Bay Area, and we're going to do that by pledging uh, $100,000 to Kiva today. And uh, we are asking for those dollars to be um, dedicated to help uh, women out of economic uh, poverty here in the Bay Area. Thank you.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, please direct your attention to the video screens for a special message from Leader Nancy Pelosi.
22: Thank you, Mayor Ed Lee, Mayor Libby Schaaf, and the Women's Foundation of California, and greetings to everyone here for the Bay Area's Women's Summit. You all know the indisputable truth. When women succeed, America succeeds. And when women succeed, the world moves forward. That is why House Democrats' economic agenda for women and working families stands on four pillars of work-family balance, equal and fair pay, paid family leave, affordable quality childcare, and strengthened retirement security for women. California is leading the way on these issues, but there is much more to be done. We hope you will join us by saying, I pledge to help enact our economic agenda to unleash the full power of women in the Bay Area and beyond. We are on the verge of a monumental breakthrough for American women. The possibility of a woman in the highest office in the land, highest office in the world. To all the women gathered for this summit, let us draw inspiration from each other and strength from how far we have come together. Let us pledge to build a world that includes equity, empowerment, and opportunity for all of our daughters and granddaughters. Thank you for your leadership and dedication in advancing economic empowerment and equality for women. Enjoy the summit. Thank you.
19: All right, now it is time as your hosts for Mayor Lee and I to make our pledges to action today. Um, I'm gonna start with something that I call my brilliant baby. Uh, one of my most passionate beliefs is that education sets us free. And in my city, my ninth grade class right now, is on track for only 10% to have a college degree by the time they are 23 years old. So the Oakland Promise sets out to change that. And the very first step in the continuum of supports that the Oakland Promise is going to provide is called My Brilliant Baby. I pledge to support 1,500 low-income mothers of new babies over the next three years by opening college savings accounts for their babies seated with $500 each. In addition, I'll be providing financial coaching and a savings match for the moms. And you should know that 60% of these women will be single parent moms. If you want to help me in finding out more about the Oakland Promise and even registering as a champion of the Promise, you can go to oaklandpromise.org. All right, my second pledge, I already uh, made a demonstration, (laughs) but I pledge to continue to support women entrepreneurs in Oakland through Kiva.org. Over the next three years, Kiva Oakland will fund 600 low income entrepreneurs, 70% of which we believe will be ethnic minorities. Oakland was the first city in the country to be a trustee on the Kiva network. So I pledge over the next year to personally fund 50 women entrepreneurs. You saw me do my first one today. (laughs) As well as promote lending opportunities to others through my networks and social network outreach uh, so that 50 women entrepreneurs in Oakland can have the capital they need to grow their small businesses. And again, if you want to help me, go to kiva.org. Right now there are five women entrepreneurs in Oakland that are seeking loans for their businesses and you just heard that Kaiser Permanente is gonna be helping to match every dollar that you lend with their own loans. My third pledge is around educating and empowering women and girls. Uh, This will be a fun one. We will be hosting a film series uh, with panel discussions following around the issues of empowering young girls and women. And this will be in partnership with Oakland-based organizations that do this work as well as providing them an opportunity to raise awareness of their work as well as raise funds for their missions. And finally, my fourth pledge. This is a issue that I have been working on passionately for nearly 20 years in the city of Oakland. And that is a very tragic sexual exploitation of young girls. Unfortunately, Oakland is one of the highest areas for this horrific crime in the country. And obviously that has been made even more poignant by the unbelievably disturbing information that potentially our own And again, a small handful of our own law enforcement officers have been participating in this exploitation of victims. And so by 2017, I pledge to disrupt demand for buying sex by contacting 10,000 sex buyers. You should know that in a recent study, 20% of the men surveyed admitted they have bought sex. You can help me in my pledge by going to a website called, this is pretty catchy ladies, (laughs) reportjohn.com. Reportjohn.com. If you see someone purchasing sex, you can input their license plate number and they will receive a very nice letter from the city of Oakland telling them that we are watching them. And I want to really commend also the amazing partnership, uh, a warrior on this issue, our district attorney, Nancy O'Malley. Those are my four pledges that I make today to empower women to look for equity and opportunity for all people. Thank you.
2: Those are incredible pledges and I know all of you in this room will also match ours with your own pledges as well and make sure that you have an opportunity to use the post-its because it's one thing to say something to yourself the you pledge, it's another thing to say it around everybody because that reinforces your commitment. So here are my three pledges. You know, we have an incredible budget in San Francisco and there's good prosperity. We need to make sure that prosperity is shared by everyone. So I pledge that in the next two years, I will invest and make sure our city invests 11.8 million dollars in violence against women prevention and intervention. We have not done enough to end violence and bias in our city and this will help a long way to make our commitment a reality and while we think we've done a lot we have to do more so i say my second pledge is to make sure that i will allocate within the next two years an additional six million dollars to maintain and increase the existing subsidized childcare spaces for low-income women who work in San Francisco. This has got a double whammy because not only is childcare such a challenge, and all of you know, and it's a, a very deliberate uh, fact these days, that uh, according to the federal uh, standards, that people are now paying almost a third of their income to find quality childcare particularly working women. That just can't happen. And so this will go a long way in not just freeing up childcare spots, but guess who is the working force behind childcare? That's women also. So we'll help them in that capacity as well. This pledge is part of a larger, almost $17 million pledge or program that we have for families in San Francisco for the next two years. We're glad to do it, but we are very focused on helping women succeed in the city, and we won't stop there. My own personal commitment, something that I know Mayor Schaff shares because she's struggling with the same thing, I pledge to make sure that every single employee receives implicit bias training in their work in San Francisco, every employee. And this training will be led by a woman department head at our human resources. That will make sure that happens. But also that for all of our public safety departments, they will receive in-person implicit bias training and sexual harassment training. You know, it's not enough just to land a good job in the city. A lot of people want to stay in those jobs. Well, if you want longevity and you want good jobs, you better have the training, and the training is how to get along and how not to discriminate, because we both know that that culture can change over time if unchecked. Training and modern day training checks that culture out and this is what we commit to do on all sides of the Bay Area I want to do this to make sure we have a modern workforce that works for everyone And These are my pledges and I want to thank uh, Mayor Schaff for uh, Calling out her own pledges and I want all of you to again put down your pledges Put them, up on, the wall. Put them on the wall. We've got a big wall outside it's a big wall. It's got a lot of space. It's got a lot of sections on it. Uh, Mayor Libyschaf and I did that uh, a moment ago, a, a few hours ago, uh, and we've got our own pledges right there for everybody to see. And I want to make sure that you know we're committed to reading all of them, to documenting them, so that when we leave this place, it is not leaving behind the ideas and commitment, the inspiration you all shared with us. Thank you. Finally, I want to say thank you to Thuy Vu. Wasn't she great as an MC here today? I want to thank, again, all the volunteers that have been running around, the runners, the communication people. I want to thank the people, the women and men who served us food all day long. Thank you very much. Our city administrator, her just great handfuls of volunteers like Autumn and Una and everybody else that were helping out uh, do everything. And I also want to thank the woman next to me and all of the others who have been doing a great job in language sign uh, translation for all of us today. She's got tired arms, I'm sure. So thank you to all of them. Thank you to all of you for being here today, for sharing, uh, for being inspiring in your communications. And remember what everybody on the stage says. You're not alone. You've got mayors who want to support everything that you want to get done for your success, for women's success in the whole Bay Area, because quite frankly, if women succeed, we will both be that much more successful Congratulations on this summit. Let's keep doing it. Let's expand it. Let's get more people involved. Let's get this conversation continue to go. Thank you very much. We'll see you at the reception.